We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome into another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. And this is Thanksgiving week. Alan, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for all of our listeners. I'm thankful for us being able to be here and bring you this podcast. And I'm thankful that I have some semblance of a voice because two days ago, I had basically nothing, and it's been the battle this year for me with my voice versus uh, versus the world, I guess. But thank you for bearing with me because it's going to be a, a podcast episode where I do my best to give you what I have. Alan is not in studio today. He's with us from Jacksonville, his annual pilgrimage there. But Alan, welcome in virtually. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I'm here in Jacksonville every year for Thanksgiving week. And despite the fact that we're talking about another Gator loss, I do feel thankful for, as you said, for you to be able to record this and for everybody in Gator Nation. So glad to be here on the pod on this Monday afternoon. Yeah, we have so much to discuss on this episode. Uh, Just so much stuff to discuss. Obviously, a wild game with a heartbreaking ending, another L for Florida. Some positives, some negatives, some frustration, a huge game this week forthcoming versus Florida State, a team that I hate the most of all of Florida's rivals. Definitely one that I want to win. I'm sure most of you share that in some way, shape, or form. But first, as always, if you like the content, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews, and become a patron on Patreon, where you can support our efforts to bring you more of this content all year long by dropping us a dono. Shout out to B-Red, who got the dock done nice and early this week. Thank you so much, B-Red, for being back in the saddle. And for Carly, the commissioner, who continues her outstanding work from Colorado, where she does the YouTube film review editing. As always, you can join up on the GNFP Sammy and GNFP Java Discord, and you can check out our merch, where each and every single week, I get these fun notifications that let me know that you guys are picking up merch from the store. We appreciate that, and we hope you're enjoying the gear. All right, Alan, it is Thanksgiving week, and we have some new patrons to be thankful for. We have Kasik, which means chief, C-A-C-I-Q-U-E. Yes, I had to look that up when it came across the board. Pretty sweet. Love that one there. 
And then Gator Surfer, which is adding to our UF Surfer contingent. Love to have that. And a large dono from Marianne Gish. So welcome aboard to all of you. Welcome to the patron family. Thank you for your support. And still sitting on the throne over his rule here is Barry Jenkins, who has a huge week this week, perhaps one even much bigger than the rest of us as he's out there in California, as Barry actually went to Florida State, but is a huge Florida fan. So big week for him, I imagine, amongst him and all of his friends. Uh, And obviously, Barry, we're wishing you a W and a a great week of gloating over your friends this week. All right, let's talk about the rest of the donor legends here. James Ridge, Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Peyton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Dune, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truer, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Martin Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galliano, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Emery, Craig Scarado, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin, Baby, and Doug DiRogilio. Okay, let's talk about this game. A wild one. Nutty in the second half, especially. And despite the fact that this was kind of a nut kick of a finish, I got to say, I feel felt really proud of this team and the way they competed. I know that sounds a little bit of kind of coach speak, but with two backup offensive tackles, playing the backup quarterback who had essentially never played before against the top 10 Missouri team on the road who'd been playing really well. And they came about as close as you can to winning without actually winning. I don't know. I guess I felt kind of proud of them. And I don't know if that's the right word or not, but yeah, just kind of encouraged the way that they went at it. So how about you? How did you feel? (laughs) Proud of the team or just more dismayed of the loss? I I think both. Obviously, we talk a lot about style, right? All year long, we knew this is going to be a tough year. We said at the start, this is a year where Florida's not going to win anything. And for this team to once again, and we mentioned this last week, play extremely hard from start to finish. The players are giving, generally speaking, everything they have consistently. They go on the road. They could mail it in. They could pack it in. And they're not. And we noted that as a bright spot. And that is a very significant, I think, bright spot, Alan. And it signifies that Billy Napier has absolutely not lost this team. That inside the locker room, this team believes they are on the way up. They believe they can win these football games. They do not believe that the end is here for them and they're mailing it in and waiting for the next coaching staff to come in. So I do think that's very significant when you're talking about college kids, a lot of young kids. The buy-in is certainly high to go on the road where Florida has played very poorly for the majority of this season and then to put a game together like that where obviously you could have won that game in multiple ways uh, is significant. The loss itself still hurts so bad, largely because of what it means. Of course, Florida getting to a 500 record would be great. Having a win over a top 10 Missouri team, should they be top 10? Questionable, but regardless, a quality Missouri team on the road at night, primetime game, would have been huge for this program. And then because of that, Alan, the pain is real. To lose the game in the way Florida did, about the most painful way that you could, I'm sure most of you are like me, you're watching with your family or friends. We had a bunch of friends in my house, and we're all on the edge of our seats, basically standing up for that last play, really wanting that win, even though what does it really mean, right? Well, that's what it means. It meant a lot. I think we all know that meant a lot to the program. It would be a feel-good win. It would give you a boost heading into Florida State. 
And then the fourth and 17 play, it just pulls the rug out from underneath you. There's ways you can convert convert fourth downs down, but that was maybe the maximum pain way to give it up, uh, which is seemingly on brand for this Florida team. Uh, sadly for us Florida fans, just sort of max pain at every corner. Yeah, if they hadn't gotten to fourth and 17, if they just gone right down the field and kicked a field goal or something, I, it probably wouldn't have hurt as much. But getting them into that position where you, know, you make one more play and the game is done, Man, brutal, brutal. I mean, does this rank for you in terms of all-time bad losses, or is this? Do you think you know five years from now you barely remember this? Yeah, it can't. It cannot rank for me because it doesn't mean anything. And I think we try to do a good a good job with that. Whether Florida were to go seven and five this year or six and six in the overall scheme of my fandom, <clears throat> or really even in Billy Napier's career arc. Oddly enough, a game like that is not really meaningful. And we keep saying that, and, and don't get me wrong, losses matter. We talk about the three-year test. We talk about on-field performance. We talk about the three-legged stool. Performance matters. It's ultimately what's going to keep you as a coach or not. But some of these games that you look at, like it just it, it just would be a feel-good win, Alan, but you're really only sure. going to feel as good as your next week performance. So if Florida were to beat Missouri and then get cranked by Florida State, how do you feel then, right? Uh, if Florida beats Florida State this weekend but lost to Missouri, how do you feel then? So I think a lot of these are interchangeable. We're not going to hang a banner. We're not going to win anything. This season is largely forgettable. Uh, so that's why I am taking the significant piece that you did, which is the effort the team has it means Billy's got full buy-in. And for a, a huge year three upcoming, that's important. He'll enter the offseason uh, with hopefully some momentum. But ultimately, yes, optics matter too. And we talk about that. Obviously, Florida having a top 10 win. National media writers might say, hey, what a gutty performance. Lots of backups, backup QB. They get it done. Maybe Billy's not done yet. And instead, it sort of becomes the familiar. Florida really can't find a way to win even when they have it right there for them. Yeah, I think you're right. The narrative spins a little bit just from one play. And that's hard because if you're living your life on one play, it's tough. Yeah. Again, I think I forget who mentioned our thread, but this is basically we probably should have lost that South Carolina game. Probably should have won this one. You'd probably take that, but uh, in the reverse, but I don't know. Yeah. Long term, I don't think of anything right now feels disappointing. You know, if things go south, maybe you look back at this game or the Arkansas game and say, man, if we would have won those two, maybe things would have gone differently. It's impossible to know from this vantage point, but yeah, I don't think we're going to think about it you know, 10, 15 years from now, it's not 2001 Tennessee or 2004 Florida State or something like that. But yeah, in the moment, it felt super disappointing. Okay, Florida does lose 33-31. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, we were we were right on about Missouri, off again about Florida. Uh, I predicted 33-20, you predicted 35-17. Florida puts up a lot more points than either of us predicted. You know, the keys of the game, I wanted to see a 75% touchdown rate in the red zone. They were only at 50%. And under two D TDs for Luther Bird and hit zero. You know, kept him in check a little bit, but obviously made the play there in the game. Uh, didn't hit any of your keys. Four plays of 30-plus yards on first and second down. Only got to three. But three is not bad. No, three is solid. Yeah, that's solid. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Four was a, we asked, that was a big ask. And we had, you know, that was, that's a great day for Florida to have three like that. Yeah. And maybe if we got into four, maybe we would have won. 48% third down conversion. 
only 45, but close. Again, that maybe shows you that it's close there. And then allow three plus drives of nine or more plays where two of them result in a field goal. So one, the first drive, 12 plays in a field goal. And we held to another field goal later on. But um, yeah, that, those were interesting keys and they almost hit. And, you know, Florida almost won. Yeah, I mean, the game obviously was was super competitive. Like when you unpack the stats on both sides, they're they're almost equal in a lot of regards with, with some small differences. And obviously this game could have fallen again either way. Uh, I think, you know, for Florida on the defensive side, which we'll talk about, we'll get into their issues once again and what went down. But, you know, in this game, Florida largely made sort of a punch-for-punch kind of offensive play versus Missouri. And I think it's safe to say something we've talked about on the pod all week long, all season long with Florida's defense is the issue that we have with linebacker. And when Shamar James went out, what happened to Florida's defense? Well, the issue of Florida's defense, Allen, turned into Missouri's issue with Hopper being to us a surprise with an ankle injury. We did not know that upon broadcasting last week. He did not play. Their other starting linebacker who had gotten hurt a couple weeks before, he did not play. And a Missouri defense who was largely average and above average in some categories was not the same. And on film, you could see the same issues Missouri has that Florida has. Bad run fit by their linebackers, out of position, bad eye discipline, having no idea what's happening with a play fake. And you just, I'm going to keep saying it, you cannot be a good defense without competent and quality linebackers. And if Hopper plays that game, I would bet a significant amount of money that Florida does not score the amount of points that it scores. And we'll unpack with kind of a, the MRI of the game, if you will, why I think that's true. But that takes nothing, Alan, away from the punch-for-punch punch nature of Florida's offense hitting Missouri because the reality of football, and we talk about this every preseason, is that you are going to have injuries. You are going to have issues. You have to have depth if you want to be a championship caliber team. You can't just come into every year and say, well, if we had all of our starters healthy, we would have won games. That's not the way it works in football. So again, it's not an excuse. Florida took significant advantage of the opportunity in front of them that was presented by Missouri's linebackers not being there, and they earned all these yards and all these points and ultimately did so with the game on the line with a three-star unheralded project quarterback in Max Brown who wasn't even supposed to be the backup. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, it couldn't be a better result really for the offense, right? Like look at our point total out look at the expectation, look at our performance on the road. This to me, and I'll say it now, was the best game that Florida's offense played all season. You asked me that question last week. I said, let's see what happens versus Missouri, a step up in defense, even with Missouri's linebackers missing, which allowed Billy largely to do what he wanted. This environment on the road with the way Florida's program has been headed, the performance they got, with a backup QB to me, this was the best overall team performance with all of the challenges Florida's offense faced. This was a quality, quality performance. I agree. Let's talk about those offensive statistics. So 500 yards even of offense, 261 rushing, 239 passing. That's 9.2 yards per pass and 6.5 yards per rush. They go 511 on third down, one for one on fourth down. And that was a big fourth down. Two unforced turnovers, really. <laughs> those are two bad ones. One pick and one fumble. They had two sacks and seven tackles for loss. Felt like they were a, a lot more pressure than that. Uh, Mertz, 14 of 21, two TDs, 75% completion rate. ETN, 15 carries, 82 yards, two TDs. That's 7.1 yards per carry. Montreal, 12 for 85. 
Ricky, two receptions, 72 yards. Those are big receptions. And he had a rushing TV, which was massive in the game. Trey, kind of a quiet day despite having seven receptions, had 23 yards and one touchdown. Okay. It feels like we, this is maybe the third week in a row that we've come on and we have significantly overperformed our point total pick for the offense. So are we consistently underestimating the performance of the offense or is there something more going on? Are, we, are they just playing better than expectations or are they, are they improving in significant ways? Oh, they're definitely improving. And I think if I have to boil it down to one thing, we talked about this. This offense with Trey is rather amazingly a significantly different offense. And if you split the snaps where Trey didn't play at all in a game, the defense knew he wasn't playing or just he didn't play. And then you look at the snaps where he did. It's it's like a completely different offense. He brings a level of like grounding and comfort to the team. We've already talked about on film how much teams pay attention to him. And I want to tell you what Missouri did in this game, Alan, was their game plan was to stop Trey. That was the plan. That is where they spent their resources. And they had an excellent plan to stop Trey because they did. Right? They really largely did. He was tackled for losses more in this game than he had been at any other time this season. But because they were so aggressive on stopping the East-West game of Trey, that allowed guys like Ricky to become more dangerous. It allowed Florida's run game to become more dangerous on the interior. Now, obviously, again, I'm going to keep saying this. Those inside zone runs that Florida hit are largely because you have two linebackers not feeling correctly. And ETN will make you pay maximally. But if you keep ETN in the game every snap, but Trey never plays, even as good as ETN is, the offense is not as dynamic. So Trey, I think, has become that, that key piece, that key moment that is that is changing this offense's dynamic and direction they're really flourishing uh without it and then obviously alan again i think for our sake i'm gonna keep saying this this missouri defense is just a different defense without their leading tackler their middle linebacker the brains behind the operation they they were they were hurting themselves frequently on routine run plays and if you let billy's offense which already excels on standard downs if you let them really excel and florida was almost never behind the sticks because of lost yardage on a run, it was self-inflicted, false starts, other frustrating things this offense does. Florida's going to do well. And Florida did well running sort of the preferred game plan for this year's team. With all that being said, Alan, those two unforced turnovers loomed very large, obviously, in this football game. And it's one thing if they force it, but Mertz, who rolls left, hey, I love it. I love that he rolled left. I'd like to see more of that. Perhaps now we know why he doesn't roll left. Uh, misses a wide open corner route to Arliss. I mean, he's completely wide open. No pressure. It's an easy ball. Overthrows it. Pick. And then obviously backup quarterback Max Brown fumbles the exchange to ETN or to Montreal rather. Unforced. Those are two completely no pressure, unforced errors in a game where everything turns on one or two plays. And so if you're the offense, that stuff kills you. It kills you to make those turnovers. Uh, but obviously, Alan, I think we are underestimating their production while at the same time, you know, Florida's offense has not been the reason why they've lost. Even with those two turnovers, Alan, that is not why Florida lost. We want to keep saying it. We, we hammered the offense early on this season. I obviously came out on game one and talked about Billy, you know, needing to give up the OC position because what plus value are you getting, uh, in this position, you're giving up a chance to steward the other team. We talked about a lot, but this team As we also said, and I'll leave it here for the offense, you and I said early on, if this defense is a top 50 defense, we will win seven or eight games. 
And I think we now know with hindsight here to guide us that that would have been completely true. We would have won seven or eight games this season if our defense had finished uh, largely in top 50 with the traditional metrics. And of course, we did not do that. And again, we'll talk more about what that looks like later versus last year's defense. But that, you know, the offense, not the reason why we lost this game, even if those turnovers obviously loomed large. Certainly. I mean, yeah, they did a tremendous job of taking advantage of what Missouri was doing, as you said. Um, even, you know, with Trey out there not getting him the ball, as you said, there there's some big plays opening up. And, you know, the offensive line, you know, despite the fact that they're having some trouble pass blocking, you know, was doing a de- decent job run blocking. Etienne looked excellent as always. Montreal did a nice job when he was in there. It's funny when you think, when I think back about this game, you know, just play for play, we hit some big plays. Um, that was the story. I, because, you know, there's oftentimes if, if you're going to have to, you know, just dig and dunk down the field or pick up three, four yards here, eventually it's not going to work. But the times they didn't score really was self-inflicted, as you mentioned, the turnovers or penalties. There's a couple drives that just completely stalled out with penalties and false starts and, you know, things like that. So in the delay of game, whatever else. So they played really well. I think each game I'm going to go into it thinking they're not going to be able to muster enough to do that. But I think I just have to, you know, reassess them. But we'll have to reassess them again going forward in this next game, obviously without Grant Mertz. Okay, something that I love here, the ET offense, right? ETN and Trey. You know, we talked about the idea was them to get 50% of the touches. They did that in this game. They did it. Yeah. How about that? They hit 50% exactly. And even though, you know, Trey wasn't dominant in this game, you got him the ball. He had a touchdown. You saw ETN with, you know, did a great job running the ball. And he had a long touchdown reception. So your players made plays and that kept you in the game. So good job by the offensive staff to get them the ball 50% of the time. That's amazing. I didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. Yeah. And that's been one thing with the offense that has been nice. You know, we we've talked about it all through the year with film review. A lot of the stuff that we've discussed on film review, you know, there, there has been a, um, a change in mentality at times. Of course we still rotate Montreal. You know, I still think no offense to Montreal. He's a productive back. If you look at their season stats, they're largely similar. But the home run threat is what this team needs on offense, and that's what ETN brings. But, you know, this team is not the same on film now as they were in the first couple of weeks. They've identified who their playmakers are. They're finding ways to utilize them. They're responding to how defenses are covering them. And those touches for Trey are essential. Even if they don't go for a lot, the defense is aware of him. And again, that creates opportunities for others. And that is largely what happened in this football game. And that was significant. Now, I said earlier it was a favorable matchup for Billy's offense. So although I still think this is the best performance of the year, this does fit well within what Billy wanted to do because Florida was able to run the ball so well. And let me give you an example of that, Alan. Florida once again had 84 air yards with 176 intended. That's only a slightly above the season average for Florida, which means they were able to score a lot of points, 
running what they prefer to run. Safe passes, east-west stuff, not a lot of vertical stuff. Obviously, the offensive line prevents that. I'm not saying that's not a good game plan. What I'm saying is Missouri did not force Florida to do things that are uncomfortable doing, which other teams have before. And then in this particular game, Florida's offensive line, this might surprise you, Missouri generally gets pressure 36% of the time. In this game, they got pressure 29% of the time. So Florida outperformed the scout, so to speak. Florida was hit at the line 40%, which is lower than what their hit at the line percentage normally is. And again, I'm just going to keep saying this. That has everything to do with linebackers. Missouri's defensive line did not change, but both of their linebackers did, and they had a major regression. But most importantly, where we saw Florida really suffer last week, which largely cost the offense unable to keep up with LSU, was in man coverage. And this week, Florida was very successful. Missouri plays far more man than LSU does. They normally play 31% coming into the game. They allowed a 45% completion percentage and a 60 passer rating. Florida came in, only saw 23% man in large part because Florida was beating it. Florida with a 67% completion percentage and a 110 rating. So Florida really outperformed the scout when it came to their man offense. And that was significant. That was big. Something we have seen Florida struggle with this year. And I think that's largely what led to uh, this performance. And then lastly, a couple other interesting stats I think you'll find here, Alan, is Missouri brings pressure, generally speaking, 33% of the time. They only brought pressure 15% of the time. And when they did, Florida had a 75% completion percentage with a 109 rating. So Florida really performed well in areas that had been weakened entering into this game. Yeah, watching them compete and, you know, those backup tackles hold up just enough for Florida to, you know, be as efficient and productive as they were was really was really fun. Uh, you know, obviously they had some troubles on some of the on certain downs, but yeah, Mertz was impressive in this game for a lot of it, his ability to hit some of those routes against man and when he's rolling right and then he hit that ball to etn that was one of my favorite plays of the game and you see etn he's gone you saw i mean that's maybe the fastest he's looked all season so there's some really nice plays the end around to ricky the offense did what it needed to do to win the game and again we start off the year thinking man this defense could be special and the offense might drag it down and about the middle of the year just flipped the offense has been playing I wouldn't say really well, but certainly well enough to win most of the games outside most likely the Georgia game and maybe the LSU game. And the defense is really letting down. So I, I don't know. The, obviously, when you watch the offense, it's not ideal. It's not optimal. They don't have the kind of talent on the offensive line or at receiver to really make this thing hum. But they played really well. So interestingly, I went back, you know, Florida goes right down the field and scores on their first drive. Looks great. They've done that in five of six games outside the Arkansas game where Florida, who knows what they would have done if Ricky hadn't fumbled the ball, but scored a first drive TD. It looked great against Georgia, looked great against our LSU. I'm just so interested in what's going on there. What's Why is that working so well? Obviously, it's scripted. And is it just the element of surprise? Is there anything else that we're doing on those first drives that the coaching staff can kind of pick up and look at, hey, maybe we need to continue to lean into this? Well, I think what it tells you essentially is that Billy, <clears throat> this makes sense, right? Very systematic guy 
for all of all of my frustrations at times with Florida's offense and why just in general I think it's good for a team to have an OC as we've given other examples of guys who are prolifically smart coordinators that have OCs it's not that Billy doesn't know football and I think sometimes we'll see that critique it's like what are you saying James Billy doesn't know football no of course of course he, he knows football he's a student of the game and I think you see that come through with the scripted stuff he's watching film he sees what they're doing he takes advantage of those tendencies and he does really really well with the script he has a good idea of how they're going to be attacked and how he's going to handle that and then I think in game you start to see some of the differences when the game goes along, I think the process for Billy, if he has his system in place, it runs well. When things go a little off kilter, you see the same frustrating errors from Florida's offense that are self-inflicted. How many procedure penalties, Allen, has this team had on the road this year? Almost every game, we face five or six false starts, delays of game. We, we, we have delay of game penalties coming out of a false start penalty. Or coming out of timeouts, time. frequently, well, this like is what all the time. The, I, you know, I don't think I even realized this till recently that you know, after a false start, it's not as long of a play clock. And I feels like we, if we get a false start, we're very much in danger of getting a delay of game or having to call a timeout because we're just not ready fast enough. Right, and you get twenty seconds. So I think what that says to me is, and there, are, and most coaches are this way. Really, most coaches are either better with their game prep ahead of time, or they're better in game. That's kind of how it works. The best are great at both of them, right? I think it's clear that Billy is a better give him a long time to make a move player than he is a speed chess player. And I think speed chess is most of football. Once the game starts, it's very quick. Everything's happening. Everything's changing, and they're figuring out how to handle this, how to handle that. You got to make play calls quickly. You got to. You got to be determined and decisive with what you're going to do on the sideline. You have to organize your thoughts. And it just feels like that is largely an issue with why Florida has these problems is, is the play calls don't quite get in fast enough. A penalty happens. The next play is not in quite fast enough. It's too recurrent to assume it's just sort of a one-time thing. And no matter who the quarterback is last year or this year, the same exact problems exist. And so I think that's why the scripted plays are, we hum right along. Good tempo, ready to roll. We've practiced those eight to 10 plays extensively throughout the week. That is part of that systematic Billy nature. And the system is well-oiled and running. And he's accurately predicting what he's going to get. So again, that does show you that X's and O's wise, of course, he knows what he's doing. He knows how he wants his offense to run. And in then in game, you know, we often are our own worst enemy, uh, which obviously is not a recipe for championship level football. It is a recipe for winning seven or eight games a year. And it's important now we kind of reframe our expectations for a second. Everything we look at in the podcast lens is a championship level. That's really, really important. So my critiques on Billy's offense are not that it couldn't be a fine offense, a productive offense, even an above average SEC offense. It was that to win a title, you generally need something more than that. And it has to be more consistent than what we have seen. It's not a championship caliber if we project it out. So again, doesn't mean it can't be good. For this particular season, make no mistake about it. The offense is much better than the defense data-wise and productivity-wise. So therefore, Billy has outperformed the defensive staff given with what has happened this year. That is exactly the reality. But to your point now, I want to put a bow on it. I think he's proving that he's a very, very good game-planning-oriented coach on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, and so obviously, as we mentioned a couple of times, Austin Barber did not play in this game. You have an injury 
where we have to slide over um, Damian George, or excuse me, Cam Waits, the left tackle, injury to Damian George, slide over Cam Waits, the left tackle, you bring in Lindell Hudson to right tackle. Do we do anything to compensate for the fact that we're playing essentially two backup tackles there? You know, we didn't. And and an interesting <clears throat> an interesting reality on film is that there wasn't really a noticeable drop off. And that <laughs> that's both good and bad, right? One, Florida's offensive line is not very good. But two, it does tell you that probably players one through eight or nine are largely similar. They probably have different profiles, slightly different errors here and there. But it's not like on film, you're like, wow, that guy's way worse than the guy who just came out before him. Uh, and that was largely what allowed Florida to remain competitive is, is the offensive line actually did not take a step back on film from what the starting offensive line was doing. Interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess that's kind of good news, bad news there. Um, yeah, so but good job by both those guys to step in, especially Cam Waits having to slide over and play left tackle, which I don't know if he's ever played left tackle before. And it's probably not anywhere close to his natural position. And the fact that they continue to get it done, especially running the ball, was impressive. Okay, let's talk about Graham Mertz. His season is done. Unsure about his time at Florida or what he's going to do or even in college football. Um, you know, I, I think I'll have really fond memories of him playing as a Gator, even though this season is not nearly what I think he wanted it to be in terms of win, wins and losses. A lot of memorable moments, the South Carolina game, even the, the the play that ultimately ended his season showed a lot of his toughness. I mean, he had gotten hit a ton of times this season. I kept wondering, is he going to always get back up? Here was a moment he didn't get back up. I guess he did, and then went down, back down to play later. But he played really well, and I wish that we had had a better team around him. I think he could have put Florida in position to win a lot of games if, if everything was right around him. You know, excellent offensive line, excellent weapons, a top-tier defense. This could be a team in Florida I think would be an edge-of-the-playoff kind of team. He could certainly get you there if he's going to play how he played or, you know, at least in contention for that kind of spot. And so for as much as I think Gator Nation was down on him or maybe even the media was down on him coming into the season, he played really well. And I was impressed with him. I'm going to have fond memories of him. Yeah, well, I think he's, I mean, unless you know something different, Alan, I think the odds are pretty good he's coming back next year. Yeah, so, maybe. I, I don't know. If that, I would just say if, I probably should have copied that if that was the end. Yeah. I mean, that seems highly that unlikely they would be the end, given you have a freshman well, in Lagway coming in. I mean, I don't think it's going to go to the NFL draft. So where else would he go? Well, I'm sure you could grad transfer again, probably. Doubtful. Anyway, I think we see Mertz back next year. I think he's a starting quarterback, and I think he's mentoring Lagway. Again, the best thing about Mertz is he's a football guy. Um, you know, he's he's a film junkie. He he loves studying the game. It's precisely what you want with your freshman quarterback, where he can learn from the coaches and from a peer. I mean, that is ideal. So I don't think he's going anywhere. But regardless, um, yeah, I mean, he was great, right? We said. Coming into the year, we did not think Mertz was the reason why this team was going to lose games if it lost games this year. And I think he I think he exceeded the expectations, obviously, of Gator Nation. But I also think he exceeded our expectations because something that plagued him at Wisconsin, which on the film review I put out on him we talked about, was just his general inconsistency in big games. And that was not true 
here at Florida. And so credit to him. We had hoped that'd be the case. Maybe he overcomes whatever was going on in those big games at Wisconsin. And he totally did. And he became very dependable. His issues are his issues. Uh, I think he became too much of a game manager. Even in this game, Alan, there's times when he escapes the pocket when he has a chance for, at times, of actually very open Florida receiver down the sideline or at least a, a 60-40 ball. And he'll just run it and slide for four when I think a more... A more, you know, I'm going to try to make a play quarterback is letting some of those balls go. And Florida needs a little more of that. But if that's the critique you have on the guy, he leaves the pocket a little early, maybe struggles to move left a little bit, um, doesn't take chances quite enough. Those are really good critiques for a Florida team that is where they are right now. Like that's what you want to have, right, from a quarterback. He brings stability to a football team that is anything but stable in pretty much any phase. And that is a is a very positive thing on him. I think he totally rebranded himself. I think right. He he's a different guy now, and you love that for 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 the young man that he gets to be able to rebrand himself and feel great about his career. And he goes out with you know a, a heroic Tim Tebow like run, not as indestructible as Tim Tebow, but splitting a double team, taking on another one, getting a big first down in that game, and and what a way to go out for this season. Just a guy who really gave everything for the University of Florida and was an exemplary leader at the spot and uh to your point we, we yeah. can't say enough good things about the guy he earns all the praise he's been given and uh you know certainly he has he has my respect and hopefully Florida fans if they see him anywhere everywhere you know he represented the brand really well and, and again I think he'll be back next year so there should be some more merch in our future yeah we'll see so yeah I mean as you said I think him not turning the ball over was a necessity like if we've been turning the ball over at a prolific rate this team would have been doomed to maybe only those one, two to three wins that some people were predicting. You know, this was his first real interception. I'll put like real in quotes here. I mean, um, the other two were tip balls that, you know, were not the best balls from him, but certainly didn't have to be interceptions if things uh, break a little bit differently. And this is his first like bad ball that, okay, that was just pretty much on him. And to go the whole season where basically throwing one real interception, that that's pretty superhuman. So good job of him. Obviously the other things that were could have been picked and weren't, but that happens to every quarterback. All right. Speaking of another quarterback, Max Brown comes in the game and we'd seen him a little bit, you know, seen him in against uh some lower level competition, seen him in spring games, a guy that you know, the coaching staff is taking a total flyer on, not even a really like a football prospect, kind of an athlete, baseball player, you know, profile, but also played football. And, you know, I think I was impressed with his confidence and honestly, his athleticism. We don't think, I don't think we got a chance to see him turn it loose and turn the corner like he did on some of those zone replays, playing with physicality and then making some, gutsy throws on that fourth down especially and then the ball to Khalil Jackson you know Khalil Jackson just putting on a show for two plays there with some really difficult catches but Max Brown you know I don't know what his long-term future is but he put himself nicely in this game I I came away really rooting for him I mean if you can't root for the Max Brown story then I, I don't think you like football I mean the guy comes off the bench a guy we've seen very little of right? Three-star prospect, kind of thought of just to be a caretaker and a guy who's probably never going to play, a program guy. And all he does is come in and just and just have cojones of steel in the moment. 
First play, he comes in on it's a roll right pass. He sticks it to Ricky. Ricky gets blown up by a safety. Uh, the pass itself was fine. Actually, it's a good pass. And then that fourth and four pass you mentioned to Khalil. Allen was was rock solid. I mean, on your own half, there's still 10 minutes left in the game. The game is not over by any stretch of the imagination. You're down nine. Florida goes what they'd like to run. You know, slant double slants on both sides. And Missouri knew that was coming. They played man. They were in the right defense. And he had to throw a perfect ball, and he did. Uh, so really hero ball from him outside of the self-inflicted fumble where he got a little bobble on the snap. He was late to get to the handoff and rather just make sure it's secure or even just eat it. He tries to fit it in there, and he does not. But what I want to say on film about him, Alan, is he is, this is the right word here, he is excellent, excellent at his zone read fake. I mean, he is top level and how he executes the zone read. You can watch that on Film Review this week on our YouTube channel, but really, I cannot say enough good things, and that significantly affected Missouri's ability to play defense versus both Florida's inside zone running game and the zone keeper because he holds that thing for so long, and he's also moving in the proper direction that he was putting not only their read defensive end in a bind, but also the play side or weak side linebacker that he was reading. So he was getting both players frequently to be off balance and confused. That ETN touchdown where he walked into the end zone was created entirely because of a great block by Hanson coming on a trap block underneath, but really because of Max Brown being a threat to keep the football. And so they're kind of unsure of who's going to hold it, and that allows him to give the ball late to ETN. He walks in. A cover zero front, good play call, great execution against that in for a score. And so I think that was shocking. I mean, we had not seen really that from Max. I don't think anybody knew that outside of the people inside the program that watches the practice. But what a surprise that was to see him running all over Missouri. And really, again, I think executing a 10 out of 10 zone read fake concept. And that is what allowed Florida to drive down the field and take a lead at the end of the game. So I cannot heap enough praises on him being so good at that one thing that it actually opened up Florida's offense in significant ways. Yeah, you know, the backup quarterback often can come in and be a curveball. You have no idea. You're not preparing for this guy in the slightest. And they probably had no idea he had those kind of wheels. And, yeah, like he said, he played with just such confidence, throwing the balls that he threw, no hesitation, knew what he had to do, made a nice throw. and. Man, you know, that fumble, I, I actually don't know whether it was supposed to be given or it was a fake that he was slightly off on or hit, you know, hit the elbow. It was a weird kind of play, but that could have crashed some people. But he bounced right back, played really well after that, and threw Missouri off. Yeah, they did not know what was coming. And they, they had a hard time adjusting to what we were doing on those own reads. And... Gave Florida the lead. And basically, you know, if if that fourth and 17 holds up, we're having like Max Brown hero day on here. So I don't want to lose the fact that because Florida lost, um, we kind of are down. You know, we're, we're talking about him a little bit less. The headline is not Max Brown. It's that Florida loses. But, you know, I'm, a different play there. And all of a sudden, he's, he's the headline on ESPN.com for this, this game is that backup QB comes in and leads Florida to victory. So 
just ton of props to him. Yeah, gutsy performance. And, uh, you know, obviously that now, right, you're only as good as your last game. And now we'll see what happens. You get a whole week of film on him. Florida State's defense, very legit, much better than Missouri's in many respects. And now they're aware. They see the same fake that, that we see. And they know, hey, this guy's, this guy's pretty special at that. We're going to have to seriously address that and make him throw the football. So a different challenge yeah. on hand for him. But regardless, to your point, even if this is this is like – that was the pinnacle of Max Brown's career. If Graham Mertz was healthy and he came back this week, which he's not, but if he did, heroic stuff uh, from him. Not expected to be a contributor, and he led Florida down the field to win a game on the road. So yeah, it really is still Max Brown hero day in my book. Uh, that's awesome stuff. And look, a big hats off to the coaching staff, right? That guy was ready to play. That's another thing Indeed. about Billy being a system guy is that's part of his deal is he wants all of his guys to be ready to play. And he was ready to play. And so hats off uh, sure. to, to the staff for having him ready and obviously a game plan that they were ready to utilize him in. And that says a lot about the preparation that went into that. And, and that was a big, big win uh, for the offense. And obviously kept the, it kept you know the team right in the game until the defense, of course, once again could not seal the deal uh, in these past two games. All right. Anything else you want to note on the offense? This week we're going to need probably sixty percent touches from the ET phone home offense. That's that's going to be, I think, a major focus. If I'm Florida, I have got to get those guys the ball on almost every play. Man, uh, we'll see. It could happen. We got to fifty percent easily. Could you know? We talked about the Montreal um, ETN split. Again, I I know people maybe are like, yeah, Alan. Of course, this is true. And other people need clarification. But like we don't want Montreal to play at all. Like he's like he's good back there, but it should be like a sixty-five, you know, thirty-five or a seventy-thirty or something in there, where he's getting two drives for every Montreal drive. You don't want to play ET in the whole. You don't. You don't want to give him you know twenty-seven carries. But I think it needs to be a two-to-one kind of split rather than a fifty-fifty split like it is. And I think that would really help the offense moving forward. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Okay. Let's talk about that defense, which has been just so depressing and demoralizing the last couple of weeks. Missouri is nine of 16 on third down, one for one on fourth down and 17. Uh, they also had almost exactly 500 yards, 508 yards, 331 passing, 177 rushing. Florida defense had four stops. You know, they get four punts, four, one sack, three tackles for loss, 11 pressures, but didn't create any turnovers. Let's go ahead and talk about it. This is the headline from this game, the fourth down and 17. What exactly happened on that? Because it seemed like that was quite easy for Missouri to pick that up. Were they doing something special or tricky, or is this just a, an opportunity that Florida missed because they didn't cover in the zones that they were supposed to? Yeah, this is what makes this particular play so upsetting. Is <laughs> It's a lot of ways a team can get a fourth and 17 and you feel sick about it, but you understand. Guy makes a hero play. It's a jump ball. It's a tipped pass. It's, you know, he shakes off two defenders in the backfield and goes Michael Vick on you. I mean, there's ways you can be like, all right, that's, that's pretty filthy. This was not it. I mean, obviously all of you watched it and it's as simple as it looks. Florida is in, and again, I can't disclaimer. I don't know exactly what Florida's in, but watching the eyes of the defense and how they're moving and also Billy's comments afterwards confirm what you see on film is that he had mentioned they are in a weak side rotation. So what that means is that Bryce Thornton, who is playing one of the other split safety spots aside from Castell, he would be on the bottom of your TV screen. Uh, and he is a weak side rotation safety, meaning they are actually going to employ him onto the side that has three receivers, which was the top side of your screen on television. It's where Luther Van Burden wound up catching the pass. So there are three receivers up there, one, two, and three. You start with the receiver at the top of your screen, that's one, then the second one's two, and then three, right? So what's happening on that play is the weak side safety, Thornton is going to cover number three if he at all comes across the middle of the field, he runs a dig, he runs a post, whatever. He's going to take that route. And then on the right side where he was, they're going to leave Kimber essentially one-on-one playing a cover three bail technique. He's dropping out. He's going to give up 12 yards, 13 yards, but not a first down. So on the right side of the field, we're good. Everything is covered. On the left side of the field where the issue occurs, right away, you have our nickel, the excellent Jaden Hill. He immediately on hike rolls out to the flat and then starts to get depth. He's going to wall off everything onto the inside as Jason Marshall has dropped off the ball, and he's basically playing the same thing Kimber's playing, sort of a drop back cover three technique. And those two are going to make sure there's no there's no outside the seam pass, outside the numbers pass, or any vertical pass, and rally down on a shorter play. And that then leaves the two culprits for what goes wrong here, Allen. One is Manny Nunnery. So Nunnery on hike is going to read the release of number three and also the release of number two. 
If number three goes vertical, he needs to also get depth to make sure that they cannot hit a quick vertical to number three. If number three at all moves to the inside part of the field, across the field, he's going to let that go to Bryce Thornton, which he then does. He then eyes the number two, which is their best receiver, Allen, the guy who had nine catches for 158 yards in this football game, who's just simply running a zone seam route. Now, this is by design. Their number one receiver is running the same thing, just five to eight yards over top of Van Burden. So they're both going to get to the sticks, snap their head around, except they know there's a lot of ways to cover this. The one of the most likely ways Florida's going to cover this bunch set is to have Jason Marshall sort of playing off, absorbing the number one receiver's release. And they're basically just trying to create a problem with Florida's linebackers. This is the goal of this play. Will your linebacker get enough depth? And Nunnery, upon seeing the number two, Van Burden go vertical, looks at him and then freezes. Because he's thinking in his mind, it's not fourth and 17, right? So on fourth down and something less, like five or six, then essentially he doesn't need to be dropping down 20 yards down the field. But I think for a second, he just forgets what is going on. He sits a good eight yards underneath the sticks, which gives a massive window for this throw to be made. And I have to think to Cook's unbelievable surprise at quarterback, he opens up, he reads the right side of the field, he never even looks left, and he gets the gift of all gifts, which is a layup bunny 18-yard throw, not even over a dropping linebacker because the linebacker is guarding no one in no man's land, coupled with the fact that Florida's safety, Castell, is 40 yards off the ball. It's 4th and 17. We're in cover 3. He's 40 yards off the ball. He can't make a play on anyone. He's not doing anything. He might as well be at home watching with us. Now, that is insanity. It's insanity. My best guess as to what has happened is this. Florida, again, playing tons of freshmen. I know I keep saying this, and you guys don't like it. It's a reality. Florida playing linebackers. They haven't gotten a lot of playing time in Nunnery, who, by the way, a couple plays before Allen has some really nice pass defenses on Burden. Tends to be a pretty good pass defender if he's in the right spot. You got to be in the right spot. You get Nunnery, and you get Castell. This one's mainly on Nunnery. Nunnery's the hook defender. It's his fault. But defensively, schematically, the real issue here that kills me is Florida came out of a timeout on this play. Out of a timeout, Allen. It's fourth down and 17. If you want to play what Florida played, which is to play a poach, a poach technique with that weak side backside, you can do that. But to not have your defenders at the sticks is literally criminal. To have a ball easily thrown over your dropping hook defender is insanity. And in my opinion, to have a safety 40 yards off the ball is equally insane it's equally insane because he's deep third in the middle of the field. He is not responsible for what happens outside the hashes. And those players were not running vertical. The only player running a route that could threaten his deep third is the guy right in front of his face, but he's way too far away. So in the NFL, what would happen? The safety would have been much closer, much more compact. He would trust his other two guys dropping back in cover three. And we know that's not my job. We got a freshman back there. He's thinking, I'm not going to get beat for a touchdown. I'm playing more normal defense. I'm going to play safe. I'll trust my hook defenders. Then you get Nunnery, who does not drop back far enough. So basically, the call that Florida's in is fine. It's a fine call. You can run cover three right there. You can play off. You can play soft. If you drop the hook back far enough, Nunnery is directly underneath Burden, which is what's supposed to happen. And the game is over, unless Burden makes some absurd catch, right? That's the idea. But even then, Alan, this is what I end with. Coming out of a timeout, do you really want 
the best receiver on the other team, going up against a reserve linebacker who transferred from Houston, where he's dropping as a hook defender and there's no one else there to help him. Is that really what you want to have in that situation? And so for me, and we're going to talk about the defense. We'll talk about what they've done. We'll talk about Coach Ham, of course, a guy who at the beginning of the year I was super elated on and a guy that I'm still high on. I got to say it, despite all this trash, we'll talk about it. This was a bad call. I thought he made some bad calls last week. I thought he made another really bad call here. And here's why. Coming into this game, we had talked about Missouri's offense. Competent, solid offense. And we had mentioned the two weaknesses of Missouri, as far as stats would say, were pretty clear. One was versus cover two man. Florida's defense played precisely one snap of cover two man in this game was an incomplete pass. Check. That's good. Okay. They were very weak in that. This was maybe, Allen, the ideal scenario to play cover two man. Because you have two safeties looking in the backfield. If Cook starts to run, he has to run 17 yards, right? However, you might not want to play man because you're worried that maybe you're going to hold or get a pass interference call. So you're worried, all right? Secondarily, the other thing you could do, which we know is Missouri has been very weak versus seven-man pressures, which Florida's done before. We did it versus LSU in the first half. It's fourth down and 17. Force the ball out immediately. You still have a free safety covering. Funnel in and make a tackle or an incomplete pass. Also good. So why does Florida elect to take the most conservative route? Why are they dropping seven? They could have dropped eight, but why are they dropping seven? Because the reality is it's not like Coach Ham hasn't tried everything, right? He's played zone. He's played man. He's played cover four, cover three, cover two, cover whatever. This defense seemingly gets something wrong every time. And I'm going to keep going back to it. It's a long monologue, I know. I'm going to keep going back to the end point here. The schemes on paper are all solid. They really are. They're all fine. They can all work. But Florida's execution continues to struggle. And in large part, because running the defense Florida runs is very complicated. There are so many rules. You face a bunch set. You're going to play a poach concept. You're going to bring your backside safety over. You've got to have your linebacker reading, whether he's going to read from three to two. He's going to drop. How far does he drop? You've got to have Jaden Hill dropping out to the outside. How far does he drop? You've got to have your safety. How far is he going to drop? Is he going to make a play? What's he responsible for? Everything is happening in a matter of seconds pre-snap coming out of a timeout with freshmen and transfers across the field and Wingo at the other spot of linebacker. This is not a veteran unit. The veterans are generally playing really well. Jaden Hill plays well in almost every snap. So long story short is, and we talked about this coming into the game, I think Florida would have done well to just simplify stuff. Just literally right then on that play, we're going to cover four, drop everyone back, sit people at the sticks, put four across, and just say, look, sit at the sticks, right? Everyone drop back all the way to the sticks, four across, put two guys over top, and you're fine. Like, that's a static zone. That's a high school level play. But in that play, it would have actually stopped it. And generally speaking, it probably would stop it anyway in that situation. So I think Florida's been victim to trying to do the ceiling level thing with a team that cannot do it. And no matter what tactics we've tried, it's come back to bite us almost every time. All that being said, the first three downs, the first three downs of defense on that sequence were excellent downs of defense, Alan. They were fantastic. Yes. And we were running similar concepts. Yeah. And this is going to lead me into, stay tuned for this, because during Florida State, I'm going to give you this year's Florida's defensive total success rate-wise versus last year's. And it's going to surprise a lot of you, and it's going to confirm what we've talked about, is this defense generally plays a lot of good plays really, really well. And they fall flat on their face in big moments. And it's one reason why I'm confident this year's defense, despite all the total yards numbers, explosive plays, everything else, is actually much better under the hood than last year's defense, despite the fact that they're historically bad. I know that might sound crazy. We're going to unpack that. But this was just, a, those four plays are a microcosm of Florida's entire defense this whole year. You have top level, top shelf, excellent conceptual stuff, scheme-wise, shutdown stuff, 
that leads into the easiest possible thing that a guy coaching middle school football would just say, look, I'm going to drop my guys back. I'll send three or four. I'll chill. Or I'm going to pressure everyone to get the ball out of his hands. Those are like the two easiest schematic decisions ever to make. And you probably win the game. Like literally 9.5 times out of 10 there. Just doing those things. And Florida's a 99.9% chance of winning the game. And they give up a cookie bunny first read seam throw layup to the best player on Missouri's offense. I mean, it's sickening. It's gross. We all want to find someone to blame. And that was just a train wreck coming out of a timeout. I mean, all of it brutal. As brutal as it can be. That play's brutal, Alan. Just brutal. Man, you know, I don't think I was that sad until just listening to that made me way sadder because I wanted to be celebrating a win in that moment. And it, there was this inevitability feeling after it happened. And then they pick up a couple more passes and they kick an easy field goal. But it wasn't inevitable. It, it, you're not supposed to pick up fourth and 17. And yeah, that's, that's the frustrating thing is there's probably three or four things you can do. What we did was okay if you do it right. Billy says this in the press conference. Sometimes it's not what you call it's how it's how you play it. Right? You could drop four back and then someone could screw that up too, or you rush seven and someone grabs somebody or what? Whatever. I, I don't know. There's there's other ways things go wrong. You can get too much in your head, but in trying to play it too perfectly, there it seemed like we missed the easy thing to do. And when you have no margin of error, that really hurts really hurts yeah and you said it right you could on the chessboard there's a lot of ways you can be successful against a fourth and 17 look a lot you have to execute it and the look Florida had was perfectly fine I want to keep saying that entirely fine look did not execute it which has happened frequently and that is just as frustrating um, as choosing a good strategy and holding somebody which again we be I, I guarantee you Alan if we brought seven in this game and somebody held somebody, I would get a million DMs about how we should have played zone. And if we play zone, I'll get a bunch of DMs about how we should have brought, played man and brought seven. And, you know, you, you can't win. To Arson Armstrong's credit, we have tried everything this year to win. That's one reason why I give him the benefit of the doubt. We are not doing the same stuff. But ultimately, what Billy said is correct. It's not always the play call. The execution is actually generally more important of the play call. But look, blame's got to fall somewhere. And ultimately, the coordinator is going to take the blame if the communication is not right, if the players aren't getting stuff correct. And people are not going to have tolerance for a lot of freshmen playing or transfer playing. They don't care. They want the results. Now, I try to use those things as context to say, hey, look, if this team was all super seniors playing and this is happening, it's literally all the coordinator's fault. But it's not, right? There's tons of good reasons why this stuff's still occurring and lots of good reasons why this may not happen in the future. I still remain optimistic that this defense is going to get much better for as long as Coach Ham is here. And if I'm wrong, I'll own that. And right now I realize that I'm against the grain and things look bad. Uh, but, you know, I think the numbers bear out something different. And I also think in general, schematically, Florida's just fine. They need some better players, need better execution. Uh, but that play is going gonna, is gonna to eat away at everyone as it should. That's a, that's a failure of a play. You could put them on a teach tape for exactly what not to do when closing out a game. And that's, you know, it's extra rough, Allen, too, because Princely beats a double team. And... If it's half a second longer, he probably sacks Cook. So it's like any coverage at all there is probably a no-go. And instead, Florida takes a big fat L and then kind of kind of quits on defense. That was the worst part. Kind of lays down. Like they give up another easy second down and 10. They're still not really in field goal range. Way off, soft coverage again, Castell. 
I think I think Castell's a freshman. I just don't think he gets it sometimes. I think he's not aware when he's down in coverage and he's a he's a coverage defender that you can't give up ten yard plays. Not in that situation. So you know there, yeah. there's some pain associated sure. with that. Yeah, yeah, pain for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean I, that, and that's that's. I mean, I can't kill them for that. You have the game one and you lose it, and you're playing experienced guys, uh, inexperienced guys like that. I mean, it's an understandable reaction, even if it's not the one you want. Okay, uh, we're talking about Armstrong here, and I have a question: is like, you know, are the tactics solid or squishy? Listening to what you're talking about here, it sounds like they're still mostly solid. What were the things you liked, and where did it get a little squishy for you? You know, I think they are solid. I think I think what's going on here is you know, we talk about game theory, uh, and this season we have got to talk a lot about it, in large part because Florida's team is making so many mistakes all over the place that it's hard to get to the finer lines. But, you know, Game Theory 101, for those of you that are new, starts with this concept of leveling. So if Alan and I are playing a game, let's say it's a very simple game, like tic-tac-toe. My goal is to figure out what I think Alan is going to do in this game of tic-tac-toe. Because obviously tic-tac-toe has a meta strategy to win it, right? You do this one thing and it wins. But if I know that Alan maybe doesn't play that way, and he offers me an easier path to winning, Therefore, he's not playing optimal. I need to know. He's going to do something kind of weird. I'm just, I know he does that. So I'm going to make this play instead. So to liken this to defense, if you're Coach Hammond, you know that your defense can't run the right kind of defense. They just can't do it. And for any of you who have coached anything, I'm sure you've come across this, whether it's your kids or something else. Sometimes the right idea is the wrong idea because your players can't do it. The kids can't do it. They just don't get it right. And so you have to level yourself down. Right, you de-level yourself, and you say, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take away a level of ceiling play. I'll go down two or three levels from the ceiling because I'm probably gonna get a better expected result if my team can actually execute what I want them to do." And I think that has been, in my opinion, Coach Ham's greatest failure, is he's continuing to coach tactically as though he has players who can execute this. And I'm sure each week he leaves practice feeling like, "Hey, we've got this." And you may have heard in the broadcast. <laughs> that Scooby obviously didn't play at all, right? And Scooby's been a major problem for Florida at linebacker, but so are all the other linebackers. And one of the reasons he didn't play was he missed practice due to the flu, and Florida's practices and defensive schemes are so specific to the opponent that he would not know what's necessarily happening. Now, look, I think that is optional ceiling-level play, Alan. We've talked about that stuff. Right? That's the Bill Belichick school of football. If you get seniors out there and juniors out there who are talented, that junk slaps, that junk hits. Like, you are going to mess with people. But if you can't execute that, you've got to de-level yourself down. You've got to go down multiple levels and get something that does work. And that way, you can tell your opponents, look, you know what? I know what a level 10 move is, but your Missouri football team is also not at level 10. And in fact, you really only have one guy that worries me in Van Burden, and it's fourth and 17. I don't need to run an NFL complexity split safety poach defense here. I'm going to de-level this so I make sure my players guard the sticks and make it as hard as possible for you without a chance of screwing it up. And I think that's where he just goes a little off the rails is he's still coaching for optimization. And at this point, it's for survival because this defense cannot do it. And that is why we give up so many big plays. And lastly, the other big run plays that were given up in run fit, Miguel Mitchell is clearly a run fit player and he doesn't do it. He, he goes as a pass player, which is not correct at all. And he voids his entire responsibility, and he's not there, and it's a walk-in touchdown. And that, that happens every game. 
is the scheme right? Yeah, the scheme is right. He's supposed to be the run fit player. He gets it wrong. He's not even there. And it's like, well, at some point, right? At some point, you got to look your team in the face and say, you can't run what I want you to run. You just can't do it. I have to win football games. We have to run something more simple. And so I think if there's one thing I want to hang at his feet, it is that, hey, learn something from this year in the future. If your players cannot execute optimal stuff, don't run optimal stuff. Don't do it. You cannot do it. It's not going to work. And I think that is largely what I'm sure he thinks by himself in his room. If I go back and do it again, I would not have tried to run ceiling level stuff because the team never got it. And that's unfortunate, but this team just never got it. Hmm. Well, they did get stops throughout the game, but especially in the first half. What was working well when they got stops? Well, that's just it, right? The same stuff works really well because it does work if everyone does it correctly. And Florida did that. And that's why it's so frustrating. We came into this game, Alan, saying that Missouri was best at throwing between 15 and 20 air yards and 35 plus air yards. You know what their result of this game was? They were 0 for 6. They were 0 for 6. Florida shut down what they want to do the most. 0 for 6, right? We knew that. We knew that they were a better passing than running team and they passed for us, right? They didn't run the ball really for all that impressive a margin. But unfortunately, the stuff that also works really well backfires in moments when you don't want it to because this defense just can't get out of their own way. And that's why it's hard. I think Coach Ham is like, hey, the first half went well again. We played pretty well, which they did. And the second half, you know, the wheels fall off in moments. But that's yeah, it's, kind it's, of where we are. It's mad. It's maddening in a lot of respects. It's maddening. So I'm sure, yeah, it's, and this is Coach Ham is young. So there's just not a lot of stuff to like kind of lean on here. But yeah, there's so many games that defense plays fairly well in the first half and the wheels come off in the second half. Man, I don't know if this is a tough one. Um, okay, uh, we mentioned Scooby did not play in this game. He was a guy who basically murdered a lot of what the defense wanted to do against Arkansas and against LSU. Derek Wingo and Taraja Mitchell played. These are guys who don't play a ton. Wingo comes in in certain packages. Mitchell is just now a backup. And I got to say, in the first half, I, you know, I kind of felt more confident in them than what we've been rolling out there previously with Scooby and Nunnery. Different kind of combo. They have their own limitations. It seemed like it was working. And, of course, until it doesn't, they're not in the right spot and there's a big play that happens or they're limited in coverage. I, I don't know. How did you rate that combo from the ones that we've seen in different games? Well, I mean, they tried to throw the freshman out there again, Jaden Robinson, who's yeah. you know, the most truly talented at that, but he does not know what's happening yet. And he completely, uh, just a simple tight end flat route on third down goes for a layup first down because he, again, it's confusing. It's hard. I am not, I'm trying my best to say how hard this defense is to run as a freshman. It's so freaking hard. He probably in high school was like, I'm going to man that guy. I'm going to stand right here in this zone. He's going to run into me. It's, it's impossible. There's no chance in the world that he's sitting there pre-snap saying, okay, they motioned over here now. There's a, there's a tight end here. They've got three on this side, one on that side. It's three by one. Running backs on the weak side. Okay, I'm going to wall off three and then slide it to you. Like, there's no world he did that. And so now he's doing all that in three seconds and he gets it wrong, he freezes. And he accidentally walls off the two receiver when he's responsible for number three. It's a freaking layup first down. So they're like, that's not going to work. So they stuck with the veteran guys who generally don't do that, but Nunnery did it to lose the game. But I do think, Alan, to your point, the physicality that Wingo plays with if he's right, is awesome. I mean, that dude's blowing up linemen if he's right. But if he's wrong, he can't recover. And that sickening, long, little flat pass, touchdown pass, where Wingo reads incorrectly, 
the zone read. And then he basically, in my opinion, is jogging the first 10 yards and then tries to catch up and doesn't get it. Combined by Taraj Mitchell, and also I think it's Thornton at safety or maybe Miguel Mitchell again. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and look. Take bad angles. like that. There's no world where that play should have been a touchdown. It should have been a touchdown. It should have been like a 10-yard gain at most. And it's a touchdown. It's a 75-yard touchdown. And so, you know, you take you take the good with the bad. But, yes, to your point, I think in run fit, actually, when they're right, when they're right, there's there's like a run stuff. It's solid. There's a lot of good stuff. When they're wrong, there's no recovery. They don't play with great eye discipline. They're out of position. But to your point, Scooby offers very little, in my opinion, in physicality and run game. He just doesn't get off blocks, doesn't shed stuff. And I do think Mitchell and obviously Wingo, especially Wingo, offer a ton of physicality in the run game but they're not nearly as athletic as Scooby. And so sideline to sideline, making up for mistakes, other stuff is not great, which tells you, I think, the defense is a good feel of their deficiencies and that there is no way around this. Like we have a bad, bad linebacker room, which we knew, and our only quality linebacker, Shamar, is not there. And we are suffering greatly. And it it makes me sick to think if Shamar doesn't get hurt, I think Florida has one, if not two more wins at the end of this season, just with him alone. Is how big that matters, and he's not perfect either. But uh, but yeah, to your point, in many respects, just like Florida's defense, they played really well. And in other respects, they you know they fumbled the bag. It's 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 both at the same time. Yeah, it's hard to watch like the defense play really well and then give up plays. That's like, man, why'd you guys do that? And I do like that they basically. And again, I think Scooby might have been sick, so maybe this is not. I'm giving credit where credit's not due here. But trying something different here. Let's play these guys. Let's lean into what they can do, and hopefully we'll get a favorable outcome. And a lot of ways that happened, and some ways it didn't. Then we talked about the freshman safeties. We were really high in Castell in the first half of the season. And, you know, some of his deficiencies have really showed up. Bryce Thornton does a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. You know, I, I... my Jacksonville Jaguars played against the 49ers two weeks ago, and it seemed like all of our bad tendencies, all the mistakes that we like to make in the game, really all those chickens came home to roost and we got blasted. Felt like for our freshman safety these last couple of weeks, all their places where they don't <laughs> do what they're supposed to do has really hurt us. And this is especially true in this game. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you know, <clears throat> you don't want to play two true freshmen at safety. You don't want to do that. I don't care if they're going to be Ed Reed one day. Like, you don't want two Ed Reeds as freshmen at safety if you could have a senior who's 70% of Ed Reed and you play Ed Reed in spots that he's comfortable in, right? And so for Castell, if this is a normal football team, Castell would rotate in in obvious passing downs where he could play actual safety. But in Florida's split safety, look, look, we're matching him up a lot against the team's second or third best receiver in the slot. And that's what you do as a split safety defense. And he's not comfortable. He's not comfortable there. He plays off too far. He doesn't come down quite yet, but he'll get comfortable, right? The more reps he gets, the better he'll get at that. He's tried to improve his tackling. You can see it on film. He tackled much better in this game. There's an improvement there. There's just a lot to work on, but obviously you just can't scheme around it. Not the way that we run, again, not the way that we run defense, right? If you sit back into cover four and you let those two guys just play deep quarters, 
They can do that. That's a layup. That's easy. But we're not asking those guys to do that. We are asking them to be essential features of our defense in the run fit and in the passing game. And we're asking them to come down in the box. And it's a tall order. So I do think it will benefit all these guys down the road. And hopefully what you're hoping as a coach is that all of the the difficulty you're going through right now, all of the growing pains turn into experience and, and positivity and a rebuild of the entire unit to where you never face this again. Your safeties that learn from underneath them come in as at least sophomores. And then you begin to have what you want to have, which is a veteran passing the job to a young player. That's kind of the Nick Saban or Kirby Smart model. And that's what Florida's trying to restart. So don't lose sight of that. Again, don't lose sight of that. That's really important. Every coach goes for that. Florida's going for that. And there's only so much you can do. But yeah, I mean, you know, the safety play is continuing to hurt us really badly. They don't they don't play safe, meaning they don't tackle people to stop big plays. And they get things wrong, as you'd expect freshmen to get wrong, even at the end of a season. It's just a very complicated position. Okay. Anything else you want to know about the defense before we move on? I think we need to, even with this game, which is going to be different, I think you know we have to pick our spots to be aggressive. Like I mentioned, I think bringing seven is a good idea for this kind of defense. One thing about playing man, Allen, is your guys don't get it wrong. If you just literally line up and say, you're taking that guy no matter what, do you leave yourself vulnerable to switches and other stuff? Yes, you do. But if you choose your spots correctly, like fourth and 17, there's not a lot of complexity they can bring at you. You live and die with some of that stuff, right? Yeah, you might hold, you might do this, but there's a time for that, I think, especially with pressure. There's also a time, I think, generally for Florida just to play a more static-oriented defense. They're going to face a quarterback who's a four-year guy at Florida State, has not played a lot. Do you need the perfect back-end rotation on defense, or can you just get away with sometimes dropping eight and seven and letting it be its own worst enemy? We asked that question last week. I'm going to ask it again this week. I really think we have to de-level this defense to try to get a win here rather than continue to try to get these game plan rules right, which evidence will tell us this year we're just not getting right. So I would I would hope, beg, pray that we do something to simplify some of these rules and some of these complex you know, rule sets we have for facing a bunch set or a two by two or a nub tight end or whatever. And we, and we just, let's just make sure we get lined up correctly, especially with our linebackers and safeties. And maybe, maybe that saves us seven to 10 points a game. All right. Special teams smack goes from one for one and a really nice kick in a big situation. And there were some punts in this game and I to their credit, the Williams, there haven't been any major issues in terms of like men on the field and you know terrible terrible special teams gaffes so i guess the good news on that end. yeah no great news there much better it's nice to not have to talk about special teams that's kind of what you normally hope for unless they make like a trick play it's just that they do their thing and and they didn't didn't cause you to lose the game uh, which they did not i mean smack hits the game winning field goal again yes. smack it'd be a redemption story for smack on the road makes a field goal after missing one with a chance to win previously much further one previously obviously uh, and that doesn't happen and, and neither does like you said the the max brown sort of people talking about him on talk shows gutty performance comeback and that's why football is a great team game right like one guy can't do it you know yeah. you got to all support each other you're right that that is honestly as we're getting here to the final thoughts i mean that that's probably the most depressing part of this is like all the fun stories we could have been celebrating even that much more okay coaching not coaching corner, but coaching decisions section here. We went forward on fourth and four with most of the fourth quarter remaining on our own end, down nine. 
I mean, very clearly didn't trust the defense to get two stops. I like that we did this. What did you think about that? Well, this is the thing. We talked about this before. I either love it or I hate it. I love it personally in this situation, but it has to be consistent with your end game decision-making as well. And so the question I pose to you, Alan, is if you go for it on fourth and four with, again, 10-ish remaining minutes remaining left in the fourth quarter on your own end, down nine, you're essentially saying you don't feel like you're going to stop them twice, right? Because if you punt, you get a stop, you score. You get a stop, you score again, you win the game. And there's plenty of time for that to happen. Plenty of time. Florida has all three timeouts. So you're, you're fine there. So the decision you make in that moment is, I don't think I can stop them twice. So I'm going to go for it. Florida scores a touchdown. Florida gets one stop. One stop. They find themselves in the red zone. First down, right, on the 20-yard line. What do you do? Missouri has three timeouts left. What do you do? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't do what Florida just did because you're the same coach who went for it on fourth and four in your own end, and now you're telling me that you're not going to try to get 10 yards to outright win the football game? The game will be over. You will run almost all, or if not all of the clock out, depending on when you convert that. Your quarterback is running the ball well. You're setting up plays where you could at least try to bootleg him out. It's very safe in this regard. And you're going to tell me, Alan, you're the same guy who said, I can't get two stops. I'm going to go for it. That you're going to go, I'm going to get two stops. I'm going to now get two stops because there's a minute and 30 left, which is a lot of time in college football. That is what I do not like. Do one or do the other. One or the other. You can't mix and match these. These don't, this doesn't make any sense to then mix and match these concepts because you bet the farm you couldn't get two stops. And then you have a much smaller gamble to win the game. And you don't do it? Counting on your defense to get another stop? And why would you ever count on your defense to get another stop? Makes no sense. So in isolation, I totally understand all right, you're you're down there. You have a, a quarterback who's never really played. He's played well, but he's also fumbled the ball on an exchange. You have a kicker who you, you know, I think certainly trust for the most part. And you want to run the you want to make them spend like, you know, all of their timeouts. Now we don't because our guy runs out of bounds. But running the ball and not not every run plays Create equal. We basically just ran right into up the gut, and they knew exactly what we we're going to do. And there's no chance we're going to get any yardage, seemingly. And so we had been running that zone read really well. And again, if you do that zone read exchange, it's more like you're going to fumble. But to go that conservative, right? I don't want to get super aggressive and have Max Brown air it out there. But you could have done a few more things. Now, again, I don't mind the conservative nature. I don't mind the aggressiveness, but as you said, they don't pair well together. And that's the thing that feels like we got tight at the end. So I am okay with either decision. I'm okay with being aggressive in those situations. I'm also okay with being slightly more conservative in those situations, especially with a freshman quarterback on the road. But it felt like had you been so aggressive there and then you, you let up off the gas. That's hard, man. The, the, when you get down to the end there, when you're looking at what you actually have on the table, 
it's tough to be hit the gas there. I mean, I but yeah, I mean, but is it though? Because I always like to look at the, you know, if this goes wrong, what will I say to, to my fans? What's my accountability? And I think about that on the podcast, obviously, you know, we do all the research. We, we, we spend a ton of time, like what's the informed opinion here. And it's still our opinions, but you still try to make it informed by data and evidence. Not just like, I feel this way. And you do your best to come to a conclusion that largely what I think about oftentimes is like, if I have to defend this later, what will be my rationale if it goes wrong? And Coach Ham, I think about that a lot. Like, I mean, I'm not, Coach Ham is, is a guy. I'm not more partial to him than I'm to Billy or anyone else. I just like what I see with the ceiling level scheme stuff. I think it could be championship level. It's definitely not right now. But in this case, it's like, okay, what decision could you make that rationally, when you explain it afterwards, makes a lot of sense? And like another logical thinker who is wise would be like, I get that. That's wise. And to me, Alan, I think almost anybody who, is a strategist would would say this going for it fourth and four 10 minutes remaining on your own end down nine when you have to assume they're going to at least get probably one more touchdown look at the look at the history of Florida's defense in second halves in the past month right that's the likely bet if we're betting then you say I have to score I do not have the luxury of playing this as though I have an excellent defense I do not I'm going to be aggressive and by the same token if that if you don't get that you go up in front of the media and your fans. You say, look, I went for it on fourth and four because I felt like the way Missouri's moving the ball against our defense, I needed to be able to score. I didn't think we were going to get two stops. Boom. I don't think anybody who's a strategist is going to say, that was a bad plan. Like, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. I'm watching that same thing too. Followed by, if Max Brown is to fumble the football, or, you know, and again, assuming the play call is rational, right? So obviously, again, play call is rational here. It's like third and three zone read, which they set up very nicely in the two previous plays to get a first down by Max is well set up. You're doing something similar on that end of the field. You're not going to have them drop straight back in the pocket and send five guys out. You can run a high-low option. You can run a bootleg. You can run a naked bootleg. You can do something, but you do something. And if he drops a snap or if he fumbles while getting tackled, or if he throws a pick and you have a simple high-low route where he has one real option. You go in front of the media and you say, look, here's what we knew. If we go run, run, run right there, they call three timeouts. They get the ball back with a minute and 30 seconds left. And all they need is a field goal. The likelihood of them getting that at this point in time is pretty good. I mean, I want to bank on our defense, but it's pretty good. Again, a strategist would say, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. I also agree with that. So I think the problem is when you get conservative, it's human nature to say, I want to hang on to a win. I want to do the minimal risk thing to get myself into the lead. But what you need to do is the maximal EV thing to win the game. Maximum EV to win the game, not minimal thing to take a temporary lead. And I think for a guy like Billy, who's a big analytics guy, we've seen too much of the minimal thing to take a lead in moments like that, rather than follow the maximum chance to get the expected value. So that part's disappointing. Obviously, all that being said, it's fourth and 17. So if Billy's sitting here right right now, he's like, look, I was right to back my defense in that moment. I'm putting a lot of human element pressure on them, which is true. We talk a lot about that, human element pressure on the other team, make them feel it, right? Um, You know, the quarterback's going to be nervous. But this was a Missouri team, Alan, who had been nails at the end of games all year long. Absolute nails. So if you want to put pressure on them, don't give them the ball, right? But either way, 4th and 17, we make a play right there. Billy goes to the podium and says, look, I felt good about our defense. I thought we'd get a stop that were close before. We'd stopped them multiple times in the game, and we got our fifth stop of the game and won. So all that being said, it is really important to be careful when we're talking about these things. 
these EV scenarios, it's not like it's plus 50% probability increase. It's often like 2 to 6%, which is significant if you play the game 100 times. But in the moment, you know, it's not like a slam dunk. You will win if you do this. But I do think in that case, Alan, most people probably side with what you and I are saying here, which is you probably got to try something there, at least some attempt to try to get one more first down, which your win rate goes to 100% in some scenarios. Um, and even as it was, Alan, to end this thing, it was a 99.9% chance of winning on fourth and 17. But Florida's defense, which, you know, sealed the deal at South Carolina, has not elsewhere, could not get it done. And now we're talking about this, you know, for 10 minutes. Right. And I think you explained that really well in the rationality of what do you do to give yourself the best chance to win and how do you explain that? But, you know, this is hard because if you run something and he fumbles it, you're going to get murdered. And you need whatever your explanation is. So really, the, the casual narrative is whatever the results is. We're trying to look a little bit past that. And, yeah, I can't kill Billy in this scenario, though. I get it. What you're saying makes absolute sense. And I can't kill him in this area because it it should have worked <laughs> with the 417. But also, if they go right down the field and kick a field goal and they have a kicker with a big leg, you're like, well, that was also the most expected outcome. So, man, rough one, rough one. Um, we've talked about a few of these other ones here. Yeah, do you think about going for two when we score TD to make it a one-point game instead of a two-point game? So there were a lot of yeah, there were a lot of people that were talking about this. <clears throat> this is an interesting one, and I'll go through it just for a second because it's a fun thought experiment. So we're down three. We kicked the extra point to put ourselves down two. And I immediately got three or four texts from friends who said, hey, should we go for two here? And right away, you might be thinking that's so stupid. Why would we go for two and a field goal wins the game? Well, the thinking would be if you go for two and you make it a one-point game and they score a touchdown, you're down eight. You're down eight. If you get the extra point and they score a touchdown, they get the extra point, you're down nine. You're down two scores. So there's a chance for you to make it a one-score game, but you do lose the chance to win the game on a field goal. Thankfully, math is pretty clear in this situation now, and the right decision is to go for one. Go for one. And that is largely because, of course, in in a significant amount of instances, you do get a chance to kick a field goal to win the game, much like Florida had. And you do not want to give up a chance to win the game to get a tie, which is what happens there. Uh, but that's a really good one because it does keep you within the one score rule. But because you get more wins than otherwise, the EV tells you it's actually best uh, to just go for the one point there. I also like that with the human nature element, again, of a team knowing they can lose in that scenario. So you put more game pressure on them. Uh, whereas if you get the one point, the game is the same. If you don't get it, team feels more comfortable. But either way, that is the math. And if you go with the math, it's good to go for one, which is what Billy did. For sure. I I would agree with that. I would have done the same thing there. Okay, final thoughts here. I think some people have asked me, this like dampen your overall outlook? You know, I think a win would have upped it, but it doesn't lower my overall outlook at all. Really, I think it the game increased it slightly. The fact that they were able to do what they did with so many backups and had to, you know, essentially all but won the game on the road, which they really struggled. And seeing Max Brown come in and play the way he did, you know, again, the win pushes the public narrative forward a lot. But this one actually, even though we didn't lose, it didn't doesn't dampen the 
overall outlook for me at all. No, it, it, it doesn't. Again, it doesn't for me because we said at the beginning of the year, this is a style year. What does this look like style-wise? Is the team better than it was last year? Do we have hope that the three-legged stool is going to be fulfilled? Um, <clears throat> all that being said, this team's loss is is still full of all of the things that are not championship caliber. So my outlook remains the same. The same questions I have are still here. Um, there's too many issues that we make. Procedural penalties on offense against the road. The dreaded clap snap, which we continue to get false starts on, which drives me insane. Um, and, you know, just, the, just the, the same things that go on, right? Whether it's execution errors or coaching decisions or just stuff that goes on. The goal of championship level football, not eight and five football, championship level football, is to increase your margin for error to the max. Now I know that's Billy's systematic goal stated, but so far, almost two full years in, the margin for error for Florida football, of course, is not really moved, as we're potentially about to have our third losing season in a row. At some point, it's a three year test. I always say that. I'm not going to pull the plug now. It's three-year test. Let's see what happens, right? I still get one more year of data. Wait for all the data, by the way. We said the same thing on the offense. Wait for all the data to see what happens before you make a decision. But outlook-wise, I remain exactly where I was. Win or lose that game, you may have had a small bump. And they're like, hey, look, you know what? We got 50% touches to ET. The defense executed at the end. Perhaps we could have done a few things differently that would have said, hey, we're we're learning. Uh, But all in all... You know, the same stuff pops up. All the procedure penalties, two unforced errors for turnovers, defense can't get it done, can't execute correctly, huge plays being given up. So does it really alter your perception of this football team? No, but my takeaway on this final thought is your takeaway, I think, Alan. The way this team competes tells me the culture of the football team is locked in right now. These guys fight for Billy. They believe the program is on the way up. And that is one of the most important things for a college football team. If your players believe the program is on the way up, they still see a future where they can envision themselves winning titles. And right now, I think these players think better days lie ahead. And that is a crucial thing for Billy to maintain with this football team. And so far, that looks to be true. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, man, lots to talk about there. Let's talk about the rest of the week 12 results. I went five and five, you went six and four. That puts me at 60 and 56 for the year, and you at 54 and 62 for the year. You're running out of time here, buddy, to get to 500. You gonna make it? I'm gonna need a significant bowl season to catch you. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, the bowl season is its own thing, man. Where we got, we got one more week left here. 
I don't get the championship games either. Then, uh, yeah, if I were to catch you, it yeah, would yeah, take no, no, games. yeah, it's fine. If I were to catch you, it would take the greatest run in the GNFP history on a pick scenario. Which you know, if you think about how amazing this is, Alan, we make these picks every week for nine years, and none of us have ever gone even nine and one in these picks. Yeah, probably not. Just by sheer flipping coins, you'd eventually go nine and one or ten and zero. That's it's it's crazy how hard this is. Okay. Not too hard for Arizona, who notches a mega win for them. They beat Utah 42-18. They have just been on fire. Yeah, I mean, this is the best win I think they've had. We talked about Utah as just a complete team, even though they're really down, and that Arizona played a lot of tough games in a row, and they're just getting better and better and better. And uh, hat tip again to Bobby Boucher, who supports, obviously, this podcast. He's friends with Jed Fish. He... He clued me in right away that he thought Jed Fish could be a big timer. He's a modern thinker, um, analytics guy, very much like a CEO level coach who knows football really, really well, but also is kind of going for a lot of the things we talk about in this pod. And they are they are bearing tremendous fruit out there in Arizona. There's no doubt he is going to become a significant name in the coaching market and again, a Florida grad. So it's really exciting to have a Florida grad out there doing work in the college football world. All right, North Carolina, Clemson. Clemson uh, coming, rising from the ashes a little bit. They handled North Carolina 31-20. Yeah, I think it's possible that Dabo paid Tyler from Spartanburg to make that phone call so he could use it as a rallying <laughs> cry because they've, uh, they, they've had that shot in the arm they needed and once again headed for, although disappointing for them season, I think a season a lot of other college football programs would happily take. All right, UCLA, which I cannot get a handle on. I think I picked, they're my Texas. I picked them wrong almost every week. They look really good against the USC, and they went 38-20. I, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, talk about a disappointing year for Lincoln Riley, right? This is his worst season as a head football coach. Just so disappointing on so many levels. And Caleb Williams, who obviously is uber talented and has a lot of great season stats, has not had great games versus the actual quality defenses he has faced, and that continued with UCLA. Does that concern NFL teams? Probably not at all, but still a reality out there for the Trojans. All right, Kentucky, South Carolina have a mid-off. South Carolina wins 17-14. We got that one right. Yeah, I mean, again, it just makes me happy. I've really just discovered like a, a huge distaste for Kentucky because they beat us and yeah. then people act like they're good. And that's the only reason why. It's like I can't handle it because they're never good. Every year, look at the film, they suck. And they suck. And they proved that again this year. And it makes me happy. It's a small delight to know, once again, Kentucky's trash. And I hate that we're losing to them. But you know what? For South Carolina, another end of the season win. It's always good to end your season if you're Shane Beamer with a couple W's. We'll see what they can do versus Clemson this week. All right, Louisville continues its storybook season. There, they hold off Miami, thirty-eight, thirty-one. Man, what a year by Jeff Brom! They're going to be in the ACC title game versus now a severely injured Florida State team. I mean, Alan, this team could be the ACC champs, and if they are, what an unbelievable year one! I don't think they have any real shot, but they are technically still alive for the playoff. Yeah, it would take a lot of lot of results for them to get there. But who cares for them? Sure. And that is sensational uh, year one. Yes, I don't think they're deserving. That's amazing. And yeah, and Brom taking Purdue to the championship game last year and then Louisville to the championship game this year. And that's got to be one of the top coaching accomplishments of the last 25 years. It's amazing. All right, Michigan, 
looks like it's going to flatten Maryland early on, but Maryland hangs around and keeps it close for a long time. They, they do lose 31-24. Yeah, not close for a long time, close until the end. They had the ball three different yeah. times, down one score, down less than one score, and just could not get anything going. Um, you know, Maryland and Florida are different, but they're kind of similar. And like you watch the broadcast and you'll hear at the end of this game, if you're not a Maryland fan, oh man, Mike Loxley's got it going. This program's got a bright future. In reality, it's like every year is the same. They're just not a great football team, but it's nice when my Homer pick at least cashes in for a win for me. And uh, it was definitely all that Michigan could handle in this game. And Maryland, oddly enough, owns this really weird distinction where in the past couple of years, like they average the most points against Michigan. There's like two teams that do it, and they're one of them. So they, they definitely have Michigan's number uh, when it comes to offensive production. All right, Texas, Iowa State. This one was close for a long time, but Texas ends up covering. We don't get that right because I had to go first. I couldn't pick against you with Texas there, and they went 26-16. Yeah, I said that you're welcome, Texas fans. That's partially my own selfishness since I have Texas in the playoff. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> if I had picked them, I'm sure they would have lost. So we'll see what happens this week. Okay, Kansas State, Kansas have an amazing game here. Kansas State wins 31-27. Super fun season for both programs. I'm sure Kansas would have liked to have this one. Yeah, I think they wanted this one to put a nice cap on a great season. But I think, to your point, both of these teams, I think, are are probably happy with how their years have gone. They managed their roster, some injuries, especially on Kansas' side. Uh, but right. man, can't the state of Kansas here? You know, two quality football teams seemingly every year now. That's not something you could say for basically ever. All right, Washington, Oregon State. Oregon State was favored by one, so Washington covers here. They went twenty-two twenty. This was a weird game that was close the whole time. Not a lot of scoring in the second half. In Washington, that's a tough. That's a good win because it's a tough place to play against the Beavs there. I think this is Washington's best win. And I think if you're the media and you're voting for the Heisman, you might be downplaying Penix right now. You might not have watched any of that game. And the reality was it rained from the very first minute till the very last minute of the game. It was 45 degrees. It was nonstop rain. It was brutal conditions. And they would go in there and get a win, which proves they can be a physical team. They can score without you know perfect weather conditions. They're a pass-first team. Greedy, gutty win and a really hard place to win. Uh, I think that's a signature win for them. And of course, for them, it doesn't get any easier. They're going to have a, you know, staring down the face of Washington State this week and then a rematch, significant rematch, obviously, with Oregon to settle it all up in the Pac 12. All right, Georgia, Tennessee. Tennessee, oh man, are they going to be frisky? They have a, like a 70 yard touchdown on like opening drive. And then basically nothing after that. Georgia throttles in 38 to 10. Yeah, this was the backup the breaks game. And boy, were we right about that. I mean, we asked the question, like, tell me how this makes sense. Like, Tennessee got shut down by Georgia last year, and Tennessee's offense was prolific. How in the world does a broken-down version of Tennessee's offense do anything against Georgia? And the answer is it doesn't, outside of one busted play on the opening drive. Uh, Georgia, the buzzsaw that, you know, again, we thought they would be by the end. There's just too much talent there. Kirby's got it rolling. And, you know, Kirby right now, Allen, is uh, trending for – I don't even want to say this, but it's true. The, the greatest college football coach of all time. I mean, he entered new territory. No one's ever won this many SEC games in a row. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's strongly in contention for a third straight national title, and he's doing it at a time when Jeez. most other schools are saying things like, it's harder to win than ever. It's not the same landscape. And I understand we've covered this, right? Alabama and Georgia have huge advantages. So does Ohio State because they were such premier brands and they were already rolling so much. 
they got affected the least by these changes. That is true. That's very, very true. So it's sort of like the rich get richer. But man, I mean, you cannot say enough about the buzzsaw this guy's got going on out there. And he's losing coaches every year too. And he just makes it work. All right, we'll see. They got, they're going to get to play Bama in a couple weeks. So we'll see. Yes, they are. The original final, yeah, the original playoff picks I had. I had Georgia and Bama in there. Uh, that was what I thought was going to happen. I thought both were going to get in the playoff. And now there's a, possible, there's a possibility that occurs. All right, All right, SEC roundup. A lot of not exciting stuff, like AM beating Abilene Christian 38-10. B-Red, who was a walk-on at UF, wants to note that was an all-walk-on kickoff team, which he enjoyed. That is actually pretty awesome. LSU beats Georgia State 56-14. Daniels going for a Heisman game. Let him play an absurd amount of snaps here, Allen. Eight touchdowns, 500 total yards. I mean, Brian Kelly just selling out to get in the Heisman. If he's my why coach, I, I appreciate that. So why not? Arkansas beats FIU 44-20. Bama beats Chattanooga 66-10. Ole Miss beats ULM 35-10. And Mississippi State beats Southern Miss 41-20. The last one, but certainly not the least one, our boy Grover's Auburn, who is fresh off a beating of Arkansas, loses to New Mexico State 31-10 at home. How do you possibly explain that? I don't know. And they just pants them. This is an opportunity to be competitive for large stretches against Georgia and Ole Miss. And just gets crushed. I mean, New Mexico State's a really fun story. Jerry Kill, back coaching. This team is good. So this is not your normal, like, you know, cupcake before the rivalry game. But to get pants at home like this, I mean, they I mean, they had won some games. There was some kind of some momentum. Oh, check out Auburn. But, you know, Grover was on this. was like, man, these are kind of fragile. And we're playing terrible teams in bad situations. And then they get crushed here. Worst I think Grover ever for them ever, and I think Grover said in the text thread that man, college football can give you so much, and it can it can take so much away. There's <laughs> just so much yeah. pain. That's unreal, and and that's you know that's, that's what we say. That's the week to week nature of college football. Is Auburn was feeling kind of kind of good, like hey, we're turning a corner. We crushed Arkansas. Arkansas beat Florida, and now how do you feel? I mean, that's why you got to be careful with your week to week takes. You have to let everything play out to get the body of work. Uh, speaking of letting everything play out, Daytona Steve made a, a cool 40 bucks last week. We had suggested yeah. he should have backed the Brinks up and bet everything on Georgia, and I'm sure he wished he did. He got a win with Georgia, but the UCLA-USC over 65.5, which you thought would have happened, it still almost did, did not happen, and that caused him to lose his three-way parlay. All right, Alan, hit us up with some patrons. This is our last patron readout of the year. We've gotten through all 700-plus of them in the nine-year history of the pod. So fire off these last ones here. Okay, Scott Hall, Steve Rose, Mark Bailey, Tom Bowman, Seattle Transgator, Gerald Robinson, Brian Horsham, Nemo, Nemu, not sure about that one, Cody Summerlin, Guillermo Batista, Rob Copenhaver, Ann McQuinn, Brad Southwell, Southwell, Jay Peasy, Joshua Chilcote, Abe Hamza, Bath Styles, Camilo Otalora, Charles Clark, Cullen Chambers, David Gray Sr., Doc McDonald, DWTT, Eric McClure, Fabian Tavares, George Lebo. wonder which George, one, two, or three this is. You know, left it blank there. Jacob Johnson, James Morgan, John Morozek, John Hotman, Manuel Fernandez, Marcus Herring, Meg Gamma, Meh Gamma, Sam Trekki, Trek. <laughs> Trasquissimo. I don't know what that means, but I like it. I guess a shout out to Kyle Trask there. Travis Chancy, VP, VP, and William Weiss. 
There it is. And that concludes a year of thinking on Thanksgiving week, by the way. That was, uh, you know, well planned by us. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) thanks to all of you for supporting the show. And thanks to all of you for listening, as always. All right, a few ad reads here as I will struggle through these. All right, let's start with, of course, our really one of our favorites this year, which is Amira Custom Homes. So if you have lost your voice, Alan, and you are struggling to be able to communicate, you don't have to call Corey Amira. You can go on the website and you can look at all the houses and get a nice idea and you can email him and you can say, hey, I'm interested in this. I can't talk right now. Let's discuss later, but here's what I'm thinking. And he can provide you with all the details that you need. Corey, as all of you well know now, is a second generation contractor, big fan of this pod, and he spent his entire life working in construction. And he therefore has the experience to help you execute the right game plan for your family's custom home. You can check out some of his custom builds at amiracustomhomes.com. That's A-M-I-R-A customhomes.com. And Alan, why don't you hit the live read for our good buddy and stat boy, Josh Duty? Okay, so here on the pod, we talk all the time about using a mix of optimal and exploitative strategy to get the best possible results for every situation. That philosophy can be used on and off the field. Our longtime friend of the pod, Josh Judy, aka Statboy, as you said, can help you find the perfect strategy to optimize your next job offer. Josh is a salary negotiation coach for high earners, and he's worked with all types of experienced professionals to optimize their job offers from Fortune 5 companies like Google to startups to hospitals and everything in between. If you're a high earner who's making a move soon, you should absolutely work with Josh to negotiate your job offer to make sure that when you put your head on the pillow after that first day of your job, you know you didn't leave anything on the table and your compensation package is as good as it can be. You can find Josh over at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Click the get one-on-one help button to learn more about his coaching offering and make sure you tell him you heard about him from the pod. Fearlesssalarynegotiation.com is where to go when you want to be absolutely sure you're getting paid what you're worth. I said this last week, if you're going to negotiate, you want this guy in your corner, hit him up. It will absolutely be worth it. I'm super confident of that. Yeah, he just finished negotiating okay. last week, actually, Alan, as a real story. Uh, just finished negotiating a guy who was he was going to get paid over a million, and uh, Josh is able to get him an additional seven hundred thousand. So even Jeez. no matter what, no matter what size you're looking at, you know the offer came in at around a mil, and he's getting around one point seven. So. No matter where you're at, if you're making, you know, 300, 400, 500, 800, whatever the case may be, uh, he's the spot. And if you're making 30 or 40 and you're coming out of school as a student, check out his website because on that website, he's got a package for you where you can learn to negotiate yourself and that'll get you most of the way there. All right. With that being said, Alan, it is time for those dreaded Seminoles to come to town. Shoot. All right. FSU prep. This is my most hated team. As I think most of you know, I desperately want Florida to win this game. Now, they are number five currently in the AP poll. We'll see what happens when the you know the CFP rankings come out. They're 11-0. and 0. They're only favored by six at Florida. I wonder what this, this number would have been because, as we all know, Jordan Travis had just a gruesome injury last week. So, on one hand, this gives Florida theoretically a much better shot to win the game. On the other hand, I really wanted to steal their souls with a win here. Now it probably still will happen, but I don't know what the state of their program is without Jordan Travis. I doubt they're going to win the national championship without him. We'll see about that. But before we get into all the elements of the game, let's do the big homies culture corner. I know some of you have been waiting with bated breath for this one. Let me start it off here. 
Let's talk about the mascot, mascot background. So a little refresher here from Becoming. Seminole history begins with the bands of Creek indigenous people from Georgia and Alabama who migrated to Florida in the 1700s. Groups of lower creeks moved to Florida to get away from the dominance of the upper creeks. And for clarity, FSU states they do not have a mascot, only the honor to call themselves Seminoles. But for the sake of simplicity and for the segment written by Florida Simpleton, we will refer to it as a mascot. Okay, Chief Osceola, question mark, as <laughs> Becoming wrote this. What is the name of the FSU mascot? I bet you said Chief Osceola, Chief Osceola and Renegade, the horse in your head. Well, it turns out he is not, nor was he ever an actual chief. Osceola was a real person, a real badass, in fact, Becoming says, a prolific resistance fighter during the Second Seminole War. He was considered a leader because of his fearlessness and tenacity. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Osceola, I won't ruin your day by bringing you up to speed on the tragic ending to his life and the state of the country surrounding it. After this research, I will definitely look at this mascot differently. The idea to use, the idea to use Osceola and Renegade as the mascots was first conceived by Bill Durham in 1962 when he was voted into homecoming court. Rejected, he later reintroduced the idea to Ann Bowden in 1977 and won her support. That is significant because she was the wife of then football coach Bobby Bowden, obviously. Bobby began coaching the FSU in 1976. Let that sink in. Okay. Wow. How about that? Fan and reputation. Unlike the heroic man that was Osceola, these bird-chested brads get on my last nerve. This time of year is supposed to be about giving thanks for all the good we have in our lives, spending time with our loved ones, and preparing amazing food. Amen to that. He does all of that. That is big homie. It is truly one of his favorite days of the year, but then two days later, after emerging from his tryptophan coma, his heart is filled with hatred. Hatred for a fan base that cheers for a clown school, literally. Hatred for a college that was better off when it was all women. It is the Jimbo Fisher of schools. <laughs> Unbearable chants and cheers. And that world record circle jerk that they call a chop. It gives him the whole get off my pri- uh, get off my property vibes, and he's not even 40 years old yet. So there you go. Big homie revealing his age. He does have kids, and he's married. So he's a grown adult, as Mike Gundy would say. As Gator fans, I think we all have a friend who is an FSU fan. That is true. And I'm willing to bet that person is able to get under your skin more than almost anyone else. Why is that? It's because they're gutter people. Have you been to Tallahassee? (laughs) Tallahassee is the Terry Bowden of Florida towns. Hunter S. Thompson, an FSU night school alum, was quoted as saying, the city is a real crap hole. Ironically, Thompson never graduated high school because you guessed it, robbery. So there you go. There is the love that he has for Florida State. All of you know Florida State is my least favorite school, the one I most want to get a win against. I cannot stand these jokers. And I was ever so thrilled, Alan, that Florida basketball clapped them by a million points on Friday night in the Odom. I was there for that. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. I can only hope and pray that some similar result occurs in the Swamp on Saturday. Get us prepped for these criminals. Oh, man. The criminals. I love it. Thank you for mentioning that. I want them to lose at everything, no matter what. I'm, on, I'm quoted this often, even women's water polo. doesn't matter what. I want to see them lose. I desperately want Florida to win this game in the swamp. Their coach is Mike Norvell. He's been there for a few years now. You all are familiar with him. OC is Alex Atkins. He's also in his fourth season at FSU, his second as OC. Randy Shannon, familiar name to all of us, second season. And the other DC, Adam Fuller, in his fourth season. Okay, the DKI, UFO versus FSU, advantage FSU. 
UFD versus FSU, advantage UFD. Now, that's probably a little misleading, but FSU has like an average age of 3.38. That's years in school. 21 COVID All-Stars, meaning people have extra years. You have 2.01, eight COVID All-Stars, meaning those guys have extra years of eligibility. So that's just like, so, almost exactly like what we faced with Missouri, where half mm-hmm. of Florida State's 2D roster are, are like super seniors, which again is showing a lot of how Drinkowitz and Norvell have sort of built this team to get here. Something Billy did not have the luxury of doing because the the Dan Mullen to Billy Napier classes almost entirely left. Like half of those players were not in the program, did not get a chance to do that. Norvell did a really good job in the transfer portal. So credit to him for that. And obviously they're playing like teams that are just almost twice as old in experience. And that's an uphill battle that Florida's facing every week, basically. Okay, Tate Rodemaker, the new quarterback, a grand total of 217 yards and two TDs last week. These other guys you'll know much more concretely. Trey Benson, the running back, 743 yards, 5.0 yards per carry, 11 TDs. We got a note here on this. Broken missed tackle rate, James? Uh, I do have a note, but I don't have that in front of me. But actually, it's not very good. So the interesting thing about Florida State's run game, you're going to find out, is it's pretty pedestrian. Pretty pedestrian. So not what you would consider to be a Florida State of old rushing attack, uh, which is positive, obviously, for Florida's defense, which gives up tons of rushing yards to seemingly everyone. Okay, the wide receivers... These are the real stars here. Keon Coleman, 45 for 615, 11 TDs. If you watch this guy, you see an immediate NFL talent. Johnny Wilson, 33 for 532 and two TDs. Jaheim Bell, 36 receptions, 465 yards and two TDs. They throw to both their tight ends, the third most targets on the team. So these are the guys you really fear, Coleman and Wilson. Yeah, I mean, that's what get, really, and then in general, they're tight ends, actually. They have two tight ends that both get um, – a share of those third third most targets about equally. So it's it's receiver, receiver, tight ends. That's where the ball is going. And obviously, you follow Florida football, you know tight ends mean they're largely matched up on linebackers. And you know that is not good. And that is true. But all of these numbers, Alan, we have to take with a significant grain of salt because this offense will not be the same. Now, one thing Mike Norvell does well is he fundamentally alters how his offense operates. If you look at his teams at Memphis, they would make significant changes from one year to the other and how they would even use personnel groupings. So you better believe this offense is not going to look the same with Rotomaker in there. They're going to have to build things out to suit him, and he's nothing like Travis, so it will be very different. However, you should expect that tight ends will be heavily featured because Norvell knows as well as we know on film that is a major weakness for Florida. So I think we can expect that. Now, how much they're able to get the ball to Coleman and Johnny Wilson, that might vary. That might vary significantly depending on Rotomaker's ability to make passes in this football game. Okay, why don't you talk a little bit about their success rate and what they think they're going to do. Anything that we should kind of look for still. And again, we have to, this is a really hard game to talk about because their offense is built around Jordan Travis. Yep. So first, I'll read off the stats we know with Jordan Travis, and then we'll talk about what we think they might look like in the game. So, So far this season, 51% pass, 49% run. Yards per play, 8th. Points per play, 6th. Third down conversion, 41st. Red zone scoring, 22nd. Yards per rush, 32nd. Yards per pass, 16th. 
Sacks allowed 29th. INTs thrown second. So you can see the anatomy there of a good offense. Their yards per play, points per play are high. They don't turn the ball over very often. They don't give up sacks. Success rate-wise, however, this is why I like success rate. You see a different story. So overall, they're 44th. 44th, Allen. Their explosiveness is 85th. This is not an offense, despite the fact that Jordan Travis will get free and get loose, that actually scores a lot of quick score plays. Now, against Florida, everyone does, so throw that out the window anyway, right? But it tells you something about how they're built, and this does as well. On standard downs, first and second down, like we talked about, larger than, uh, you know, regular, shorter than five yards on second down, but on first down, any down, 66th. Passing downs, 14th. 14th on passing downs, second and seven longer, third or five and longer. Running plays, 93rd. You mentioned, I heard, I mean, I mentioned the pedestrian run game they have. They really do. 93rd, passing plays, 21st. So the anatomy of this offense is one that is not explosive, does not do well on first down or even short yardage downs, generally speaking, but does extremely well when they are behind it on passing downs and just extremely well on passing plays in large part because of the plays you see when you watch Florida State, which largely come off the scramble ability of Jordan Travis. A lot of this stuff is not on time and not in the pocket, Allen, but they are dangerous in those plays because he buys extra time. So the question I would ask to you then, what happens if Rodemaker, which he's not a running guy, is unable to generate the extra time on these passing downs. Does that number regress some? Does it look more like the yeah. rest of their numbers? And I think the answer is yes. I think yes, it does. I think that some of what's made this offense go is not going to be there, and it's a much more significant part of the offense than you might imagine if you just look at the yards per play and points per play. So there is something there uh, with Florida State's offense. Weak on the running game, weak on center downs. And maybe now with Travis out, it's going to be harder for them to succeed on those passing downs. Right. If you watch them, it, they run really hot and cold. There's some drives where they look unstoppable, and even segments of the game where they look unstoppable. And then they kind of go quiet for a while too. You know, they're they're not you know, consistent, and I think that shows up in these numbers. And yeah, and Jordan Travis was everything for them: scrambling, moving, buying time, scramble, like giving up the field. And back-breaking runs on third down, he was really excellent in a lot of ways. And again, he's limited in some ways as a quarterback, but just a pure playmaker for them. Yeah, super effective, super productive. And he, he scrambles out, and he feels like Johnny Wilson is always open. He's six seven. He's just running free through whatever zone or whatever broken play. It was maddening watching them pick up yards when you thought you had them. We experienced this even last year where Jordan Travis just broke our backs on some big plays and Florida probably should have won that game if they could just tackle them. So, yes, we'll see what they look like. I think they'll still be have some success because I, I think Norvell will put together a game plan that will allow them to have, you know, some sort of success against Florida. They, they won't, they're not going to be blanked. And Florida is obviously, you know, prolific at giving up big plays. But they're going to look way different. If you've been watching them all year, I don't think we're you can expect the same – sort of look that they're going to get this week right and that's the key is like basically what we're saying right is not surprising that but that Jordan Travis is such a unique component of that offense and what they do best is so uniquely centered on him often buying time 
that you're getting a very different football team. And you always get a different football team in the backup, but that's one reason why Vegas, which often I think Allen like seemingly notoriously doesn't reduce the line enough for quarterbacks, which you know you think as a fan are the most important guys. This line was 11 and a half and it moved to six upon the news that Travis was definitely out. That is an immediate five and a half point swing for one guy. And they're looking at the same numbers we're looking at, which is essentially why uh, this is the way it is. Success rate is one of the most used stats in Vegas because it is so good. It's a measure of consistency and how good your actual average play is, right? Whereas yards per play, as you saw, if you look at the yards per play and points per play stats, you're like, well, forget it, dude. They're eighth and they're sixth. But then when you see the success rate, 44th overall, 93rd running, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't really match up. That's because you've taken into account everything an offense does and how consistently they do it. All right, play action wise, they run it 31% of the time. They are excellent with the 126 rating. Pre snap motion, 29%. They are excellent, 125 rating. RPO, 12%. Decently high rate on RPOs. Excellent at it, 131 rating. Offensive line doing a very good job allowing pressure, just 26% pressure rate. However, here's the crazy part, Alan. Although they do a good job with pressure rate, again, a lot of this has to do with Jordan Travis being able to move the pocket and get around. Their running backs are hit at the line 45% of the time. 45%, which is a lot. That's why they're struggling to run the football. Florida actually tends to hit teams at the line at a very high clip, despite the fact that their run game is poor. Because when they don't, it often tends to be a touchdown. They do offer a balanced running game. Florida State will run gap and they will run zone. Their passing stats versus man, 53% completion, a 105 rating. So doing very well rating-wise. But part of Jordan Travis Allen is that like not a lot of consistency completion-wise. However, enough completions and big plays, chunk yardage plays that the rating is high enough. They are excelling significantly versus teams that bring cover zero, a 153 rating, which is basically perfect. They've also done very well versus cover one and cover two. No real, uh, man, that is cover one, cover two, man. There's really no real difference there. So man defense, they're playing very well against. Zone defense, 60% completion percentage, a 107 rating, similar versus all different types of coverage. This is kind of the magic of Florida State's passing offense when you look under the hood, is whether you're playing cover zero, one, or two, or you're playing cover two, cover three, cover four, cover six, combo coverage, they're good at it. They move the ball. There is not an obvious answer as to what you do to this team. If you want to bring pressure, they're excellent versus all pressures, five-man, six-man, seven-man, eight-man. They're, in fact, better versus pressure than no pressures, but they're also very good when you don't pressure. So again, anatomy of a top 20 passing offense is they are consistently solid when they are passing. Jordan Travis not there. What will that look like? 37% of their passes go behind the line of scrimmage with a 105 rating, 43% or five yards or less with a 112 rating. That's not a high rate for those east-west passes. Their best rating by far is between five and 15 yards. It goes down after that. They want to hit those intermediate routes on you, Allen. That's an area Florida's really struggled with this season. Not a great matchup there, but again, Jordan Travis is out. So, what should Florida's defense do? Before I give you that, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know how you're. We're going to talk about this, but yeah, well, I mean, with, you can you just have to imagine what you think Tate Roadmaker's like. Yeah, well, here's here's what I think the game plan right needs to be. So first, we'll, little game theory. You want to come into this game, I think, with a three pronged plan. Here's what I think. I watch them on film. They played an FCS team. You can watch that game. You can watch some of his meaningless snaps in garbage time. You're not going to get a ton from there, but you can get an idea. 
Does he like to stay in the pocket? How does he run? How does he move? How does he possibly respond to pressure? But you don't really know. So you come with a three-tiered plan. You come with your A plan. My defense is most comfortable running this. That's where I would start. I would start entirely with my own defense. What can I execute? What can I do? I'm going to play my own game and not worry about them. I'm going to put the pressure on them to beat what I'm doing. If that is not working, and I think in this case for Florida, it's got to be something more simple than what we're doing, right? I think we have to make sure we execute cleanly. I think with a case of a quarterback that doesn't play a lot, a lot of times zone will really mess them up. Man can make things easy, but you don't know that. Let's say you come out playing more zone. You're dropping eight at times. You're putting a lot of defenders back there on obvious passing plays. You're stopping the run with your natural defense. If that's not working, then you have to give different stuff, right? So you go to play a little more man here. Let's bring some pressure. And then perhaps if he's proving to beat man with pressure, then you got to mix it in. You got to mix in your post snap coverage. You got to mix in your zone blitzes. You got to mix in your man pressures. And you got to do what Florida tries to do every game, which is be more complicated where you can't really get a good pre snap, post snap read. But in this game, I don't think you need that. This is the classic case of deleveling. Florida State's not a great running team. You should be able to largely hold them to a normal number and you should make Tate beat you. Don't beat yourself. Don't beat yourself. By letting Tate throw a two or three yard little flat pass that gets broken up for a 77 yard touchdown. Don't beat yourself by miscommunicating and giving easy third down conversions, right? Make things difficult by allowing your defense to execute something. So for me, Alan, it's very simple. If I am Coach Ham, I am going to run what my defense is best at actually consistently executing, and I'm just going to stick with that unless they prove they can beat it because I think this is a matchup where you could just run what you do well not try to get so tactical, not try to hammer down every weakness of your opponent and just run a solid defense and see what happens. By the way, this is what the Seattle Seahawks and the Legion of Boom largely did. Different era back then of offense. Air Raiders really changed the game in general and pro and college, but they largely ran the same shell most of the time and they made you beat them. I think this is a good game for Florida to do something like that. Line up and do what you do. Make the window small and make them beat you. Do not beat yourself. I think that's got to be the focus for Florida's defense. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in this game. I, like we're going to pick it in a minute and I, it's going to be almost impossible. Um, but yeah, their offense is not the juggernaut it appears to be without Jordan Travis. That's my assumption. We'll see if that pans out. Okay. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about FSU's defensive personnel. And let's start with Jared Verse, who's a real game wrecker. 29 tackles, six and a half tackles for loss, four and a half sacks, 37 pressures. This is the guy you immediately notice out there. Probably be a first-round pick next year. Linebacker Caden Deloge, 59 tackles, 10 and a half tackles for loss, seven sacks. He's been creating a lot of pressure for them. The other defensive end, Patrick Payton, 31 pressures. In the secondary, Jerry and Jones, 15 tackles, three picks, two pass defense. And then Shaheen Brown, who the note here, virtually a perfect safety in coverage. So they've got some dudes who are very high profile, been very successful. What are they trying to do on defense, James? They are doing a lot of things well. Um, it's a traditional, you know, it's Randy Shannon, who obviously was here at Florida for a little bit, right? And Randy Shannon likes to play simple defense. If you recall, his big thing is just simple vanilla defense let your athletes get there well his defenses do work well when he has the athletes and he has the athletes you heard both defensive ends verse and Peyton 37 and 31 pressures that is what you want if you have two defensive ends creating that kind of pressure you can play four down linemen and you can kind of do whatever you want behind it 
That's largely what they do before we get into some of the nitty-gritty of how they play man or what they do in zone. Here is the overall scouting report of their success. Overall yards per play, uh, 25th. Points per play allowed, 7th. Third down conversion percentage, 3rd. Red zone percentage, 23rd. Opponents yards per rush, 51st. So there's a small chink in the armor there. Opponent yards per pass, 15th. Sacks, 31st. Interceptions, 86. So slightly little weak there by those numbers uh, with allowing rushing yards and then obviously not getting enough picks. But success rate-wise, I think a very clear picture. Overall, they're the 14th best defense in the country. Explosiveness is 64th. So not giving you a lot with Saxes picks, as you saw. Just sort of, you know, kind of average there. Standard down's 11th. Defending standard down's very, very well. Passing down 17th. Running plays 32nd. So struggling is not the right word, but not as good at stopping the run is the right word. And passing plays, they are a remarkable first in the country. Now They have not played a murderer's row of offenses, but regardless, that back seven is solid extremely solid in coverage. That is what largely makes this defense go is their passing defense. What does Randy Shannon like to do? He loves to play man. 44% of their snaps, a super high percentage, is in man, and they are killing it. 39% comp rate allowed, a 56 passer rating. They are really imposing their will against teams with their man defense. Their zone not too shabby either. A 47% completion rate, which is really, really low, Allen, for this metric with a 66.5 rating. They get pressure 39% of the time, which is obviously a lot. They bring pressure 26%. And when they bring pressure, they get pressure almost half the time. 49% comp rate, 63 rating against. They almost always bring just a five-man pressure. Again, it's very old-school, straightforward defense, right? You know what you're getting when you face them. You just have to out-execute them. They almost never drop eight by rushing three. They mainly use a four-man front where they allow a 47% completion percentage and a 66 passer rating, despite the fact that every team goes in knowing they're probably going to face that style of defense. They are solid versus both play action and motion because their linebackers are solid a 78 rating versus play action, and a 64 rating versus motion. That does not bode well for Florida, given that those two things are heavily featured in Florida's offense. All right, game plan-wise, obviously, you get a new quarterback in for Florida. He's not going to be as competent or polished, as comfortable passing as Graham Mertz, and he's facing the best passing defense Florida's faced all year. What happens now? Well, one, you heard me say it earlier, you have got to devise ways to get E.T., touches those guys have got to get touches I've got it 65% of the time in this game and Max Brown needs to be successful running the football we have to scheme ways up to get him loose again to steal some points I think screens can be effective in this game they can't be your run-of-the-mill screens Alan they need to be well designed take advantage of Florida State's pressure you can bet money that Florida State's DNs are going to blow by Florida's left tackles and right tackles with speed rushes. Use that against them by creating some well-crafted screens to be able to try to get some home run plays, getting the ball in the hands of Trey or ETN. Lastly, they play man defense a lot. They have a corner who allows a 94 quarterback rating against him. He's really the only one that's truly like on paper well attackable, and that is 
Fentrell Cypress. If you get a chance where you got a guy one on one on him, take your shot there. You better believe if Max Brown does take shots, they're going to be well coordinated and largely planned. It's going to be a go route to this guy. That's all you're doing. Let's try to make sure we get it matched up against him. It's going to be a tall order. For Florida's offense here, this is not Missouri's defense. They have excellent linebacker play. They are not missing linebackers. Uh, very, very tall order for Florida's offense at home in this one. Yeah, I, I can just imagine scenarios where Florida isn't third and long too often, and they're getting blown up, and bad things are going to happen. I don't think we can ask Max Brown to step back and drop back on third and long and do too much. doesn't mean he can't do anything. But you're going to have to be sharp on first down. And it can't just be running the ball, although we're going to have to run the ball really well. I think we're going to see a lot of that zone read that was effective against Missouri. I don't think it's going to be as effective as as it was against Missouri, but I think we'll see it. And this is where you just unload your bag of tricks. If you have anything left in there, this is the game we need to see it. Every trick play you've got, we should run it. And so we'll see. We'll see if we can get just enough to win. All right, special teams advantage FSU, penalties advantage FSU, turnover margin significant advantage FSU, and time of possession advantage UF. Uh, again, injuries we don't know. Are we going to see Austin Barber back? Are we going to see Kingsley back? We'll see. Yeah, we shall. Obviously, for Florida – Slaughter seems to have replaced Kingsley with much without much of a drop off, at least on film. Barber is your best lineman, I think most would say overall. Getting him back would be obviously a boost, but again, he's not exactly a lockdown left tackle either. So Florida's going to be up against it offensive line wise. Before we get to our picks, keys to the game and picks, let's pause for a second. I was going to put this earlier, but I wanted to save it for here because this seems like the right place to do it. And let's look at Florida's offensive success rates 2023 versus 2022 and defense and have a small commentary on it because we do have one game left. Of course, we'll put a cap on this after the Florida State game, but this might surprise a lot of you, perhaps. Maybe not. Let's see. All right, we'll start with 2022. Florida's offense overall, 79th. 79th. Florida's 2023 offense overall, 35th significant improvement in success rate, meaning your average play is much better than it was last year. One thing we want to see with this football team is you want to see improvement on the field. That generally comes from how you play productivity, right? Explosiveness 2022 with AR number one in the country in explosiveness this year, 57th. So a significant step back there. 2022 standard down rate. 85th in the country, so below average. Standard downs this year, as you know, you've heard me talk about it. We've been very good on standard downs. 22nd. Passing downs last year, 78th. Passing downs this year, 69th. That's why you continue to hear me say that's the really significant weak spot in Billy's offenses. Generally speaking, they are very weak on passing downs. Passing downs, in my opinion, are very critical to winning at a championship level in the modern era. One reason why I talk about Billy not being an OC. However, still better than last year. Running plays, successive running plays, 2022, 85th. Successive running plays this year, 50th. Remarked improvement, despite the fact, Allen, that our offensive line is much worse. Much worse. Still an improvement. 
All right, passing plays. Last year, 87th. This year, 32nd. So for those keeping track at home, for everything but explosiveness, our offense this year is better across the board when it comes to success rate. Your thoughts on hearing these stats, Alan? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think the offense has been more productive down to down, but the the explosiveness does tell a big story there in terms of what the offense looked like and felt like. Really interesting. Uh, Yeah, on the back half of the season, the offense has played fairly well, despite some of its limitations along the offensive line and, you know, at the skill positions. Yeah, so I think it's it's safe to say, I think statistically, at least from stats that I think show your consistency on down to down, <clears throat> that Florida's offense is playing better football than they did last year. Overall, right? Like play to play, they're having more success than they did last year. And that is good. You want to see as people grow, right? From year one to year two, you want to see improvement. Now look, our record's not there. We've had major issues. This is not a toning of that. But if you're looking at it, that is improvement. That is growth from year one to year two. And now let's look at the defense. Since this gets talked about a lot, I've seen so many stats thrown around about total yardage and points given up, and those things all matter. Uh, make no mistake about it. You can't just use success rate and nothing else. Right? You have to use everything. But success rate, again, matters the most to me because it's the best indicator of what your average play looks like. And obviously, if your average play gets to be really good, you're going to be really good. That's kind of the goal, right? You want your average plays to get better. So year to year, it's a nice way to see, are we getting better, are we getting worse? 2022 defensive success rate overall, 105th. Florida's overall success rate. A lot of you are going to die when you hear this. I know that you are. You're going to immediately think this stat is absurd. 34th. 34th. And this makes sense. This makes sense because on the film review every week, what do I say? Well, here's eight good plays in a row. Really good plays in a row. And then a horrific play for a touchdown. Next, explosiveness. 2022, 90th. This year, 132nd, second yep. to last. And that there is, is obviously the issue. So you can play five great plays in a row and give up one play for a touchdown. Your defense is going to give up a lot of points, despite the fact that if you play 60 plays of defense and 48 of them are really good and 12 are horrible, your defense sucks. But your average play is pretty freaking good. All right, here we go. Let's carry on. 2022, standard down rate, 68th in the country. This year, Standard downs, 28th in the country, a top 30 defense on first down and second down, obviously, and seven or shorter. All right. Passing downs, 2022, something we died with last year, if you recall, Alan, 130th, 130th. This year, 52nd, despite the fact we're playing tons of freshmen everywhere, 52nd, a marked improvement in passing down defense, third down and long, et cetera, second and long, et cetera. Let's keep going. Running plays. Last year, a hundred and second. Despite the fact that we had Dexter, who's playing in the NFL right now, logging snaps, right? Hundred and second. This year, 21st. That's going to blow your minds. Again, Florida generally does actually pretty well against the run until they give up 70-yard runs. No, they don't. That's yeah. why it's so frustrating. It's like, good, 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 horrible. Horrible, right? But 21st. Versus 102nd. They are more consistent than most other teams in the country. And lastly, passing plays. Last year, 95th. This year, 70th. It's been a major problem for Florida, obviously. Not having a lot of success on passing plays. But still, 
Those of you keeping track at home, the only thing that Florida's defense in 2023 with regards to success right with one game remaining is not better than the previous defense on is explosiveness. Both of them are bad. <laughs> Florida is significantly better in most other categories, which leads me to my conclusion I've said before. I get asked this all the time, which should you fire Coach Ham? Are you off the Coach Ham bandwagon? Is he an idiot? Is he worse than last year? Are they all the same? <clears throat> I would say, Alan, the answer is no. They're not the same. Obviously, Florida's defense this year is not good. But if you unpack the number of quality plays this year's defense played versus last year's, this year's is much better. Really interesting. Really interesting to go ahead and take that snapshot there. And obviously, they have one game left. But uh, yeah, (laughs) ultimately, the results are kind of the same. The path to get there has been very different. Okay. Are we ready now? Game prediction? We are we are ready. This is a big moment here because but this is like make or break for Florida's entire season, right? Six wins is super different than five wins. All right. All right let's get you your keys. Go, no, you go the, first. You go first. Yeah, okay. Keys to the game, please. Okay. We're going to have to run the ball effectively and consistently to win this game. So can we get to the magic five yards per carry between the running backs and Jordan Travis? I think we're going to have to. Not Jordan Travis, excuse me. Uh, Max Brown. Oh, man, I got Jordan Travis on the brain. We talk about him so much. Uh, I think if we can do that, we have a chance to be in the game. So I'm going to leave it as simply as that. Defensively, this feels like a game we can stay with them. I don't even know what how to talk about what they're going to do in the passing game. But we're going to have to continue to put pressure on them and what is our third down conversion rate, or their third down conversion rate, rather? Are they below 40%? All right, what about you? All right, we'll start with the offense. So I think that for Florida's offense to be effective, Max Brown's going to have to rush for more than 80 yards. I just don't see how they're going to allow us to just line up and run at them, even though... That's not their strength, but I think if he's able to start running at that level, then he'll be able to get a few passes complete based upon the fact that Florida State will have to overload to stop that while trusting their passing defense. I think that's a big one. Secondarily, I think the ET phone home offense needs 65, and that's an incredible number, Alan, but they need 65% of the touches if Florida wants to be able to be productive on offense. On defense, it's all really going to come down to if I could track this Easily, I would. How often are we our own worst enemy, you know, versus just giving them freebies? But we can't do that. Obviously, not a stat that's really easily countable. Uh, So instead, what I'm going to do here is quite simple. If we can keep Tate, this is going to be key. If we can keep Tate to throwing for less than 150 yards, this will be a winnable game. If he gets in the 220 range, 250 range, I think given their defense, that's going to mean they probably score too many points, right? But 150 yards, a true, make them one-dimensional. They don't run the ball well. Don't allow them to have big plays where they get 80-yard gashes. Then we're good. And my secondary thing, obviously, is to win a game with a backup quarterback like this. We cannot allow nearly as many explosive plays as we have before. If we want to win this football game, we cannot allow, in my opinion, Alan, we cannot allow any one-play touchdowns of 30 yards or more. 
None. Zero. We got to put a cap on that. We've been unable to do it. We have to do it. Cannot have a single one play touchdown of 30 plus or more yards. If we can pull that off, then we have a chance to stop them for field goals, even if they still get big plays. We can't let them steal six points on a long play. Yeah, for sure. We're going to have to hold them to field goals and we're going to have to limit the explosive plays. If they're having big time explosive plays, the Keon Coleman and you know Johnny Wilson gets loose, it's going to be lights out for us. Okay, prediction time. You get to go first on this. All right, I'm ready. So this I thought long and hard about. I watched the film. I watched Tate. You've seen all these rates uh, that we've talked about with with their offense, with or without him. Um, obviously, Florida, I think, is an improved football team. That's getting ahead of things. We'll have to look at the end of next year, despite the fact that Florida could have a losing record here, Alan. I do think this team is better in many ways. I think that they've gotten better. Now, look, I'm not saying we're a championship-level team. I'm saying the opposite of that. The same questions I have remain. I want to keep hedging this so things don't get run the wrong way here. But... There is improvement. Florida's knocked at the door now twice in a row. A lead against LSU on the road, a lead against Missouri with less than two minutes remaining. We knocked on the door twice. We asked questions of our opponent. Florida State's quarterback goes down before we do. I hate to see that. As much as I hate Florida State, you don't want to see that. Then our quarterback goes down without Mertz. So you go from feeling, hey, this is pretty good, to, oh, man, unbelievable. What a cruel fate here for Billy to not get an upper hand in something. Florida's playing at home. I think as soul-crushing as this Missouri loss and LSU loss have been, I think people perhaps feel maybe the way we do, where this team is fighting, they're there, we're playing close games, it's worth going to the Swamp and watching this game in person. Florida has a real chance to win, and if we win this game, you go into bowl season, extra practices. Do we feel great as fans? No. team has issues. Do we feel like next year is going to be rosy? Probably not. Really hard schedule. Still a lot of questions. But do we feel better? Yes, we do. The opportunity is here. Florida State, though, Allen, what is their mindset? They've lost the heart and soul of their football team. They have everything still to play for. ACC title game, a playoff. But do they still believe that this team, which has flirted with disaster multiple times, is really good enough to win? Do they believe they belong? Is there some doubt in there? What happens if a ruckus Florida crowd in the swamp gets on them in a rivalry game? Can they do it? Florida could have done it last year. I think the answer here, Alan, is yes, Florida can. I think Florida can win this game. I don't think it's going to be something to expect, but I think they can. I'm going to pick the upset here, and I think Florida wins this football game 23-20. to Wow. Uh, yeah, I love all the stuff you said. That was quite a little soliloquy there. I I think Florida can win this game, certainly. I like some of our matchups. I think the defense, theoretically, if they could just get out of their own way, could limit FSU enough. My problem is outside turnovers or special teams or something, I don't know that we're going to be able to score enough points. I don't know if the magic of Max Brown in the second half there guess Missouri is going to translate to Florida State. I think we're going to really struggle. So I think we could get a little magic and still lose this game. I so badly want to pick the upset here. But I'm going to go the other way. You pick almost this exact score, just flip it, 24-20 FSU. That galls me to have to pick that. If we had Graham Mertz in this game, I would definitely pick the Gators. I think the Gators can win, certainly. I don't know if we're going to have enough magic, but I'm going to be there in the swamp, hopefully on Saturday, 
and be so big to pick up a win here. I would love to see it. So I'm going to be pulling hard for it, but it's hard to pre- predict it to happen. Yes, we've got, obviously, this is a coin flip game the way we have it right here with this lower score, which means it almost certainly won't be like that. Whenever you think something will be like this, it'll probably be a significant advantage to one team over the other as it tends to go, I think, with backup quarterback versus backup quarterback. I, for one, will hope that we come out on top as I'll be in the swamp there with Alan, and I'm sure with a lot of you as well, for a big weekend after a delicious Thanksgiving meal, which brings us to two bits and a tail. All right, Alan, you've been on a losing streak here. Time to get a win. Are you ready? Oh, man. Number one, the first Florida State mascot was Semi, sorry, Semi, Sammy Seminole. First Florida State mascot was Sammy Seminole. Number two, Osceola's, the actual historical figure, real name was Billy Powell. Osceola's real name was Billy Powell. Number three, in one of Jameis Winston's infamous, ridiculous pregame pep talks to his teammates, he once said, yabba dabba do, I'm a gorilla and so are you. They ain't nothing, we run this zoo. <laughs> there you go. There's your three pack. Which one is oh, false? That's the game we're playing here. They all sound false. Um, Sammy Seminole, I guess they're pedantic enough to pick that. The second one is Osceola's real name. It's so random if that's not true. And the last one is still very Jameis Winston, but also feels like maybe Big Homie wrote that. Oh, my gosh. All right, I'm going to go three is false. You got it. You nailed it right there. Let's go. There it is. Yabba dabba do. I'm a gorilla and so are you. <laughs> That's great, big homie. All right, Alan with the dubs. That means a charitable contribution will go from big homie to a charity of your choice, Alan. Congratulations on your win. If we had a soundboard right now, you'd have like the Price is Right winning music being played. Nice work. All right, let's get right to the slate and then wrap this bad boy up. A lot of good stuff. This is, of course, the finishing week for college football, and that means it is rivalry week for most teams in the country. And it starts, as always, on Thanksgiving with the Egg Bowl, where number 12 Ole Miss goes on the road to Mississippi State, where they are favored by 11. Give me Ole Miss. This is going to be a wacky game, but Mississippi State's been way too erratic to pick them. Yeah, I feel like this is a, a great old Miss spot right here. Uh, I'm all over that one with you. Friday, Mizzou goes on the road to Arkansas, where they are favored only by 7.5. Yeah, this game could get wonky. Arkansas has been so up and down as well. This is low enough that I, I'm fine with it. I mean, I, I don't know if I would bet it with that 7.5 if I actually bet on games, but I have to pick Mizzou here. Yeah, I love this pick for Mizzou. I'm, I'm all about this one. Oregon State on the road at Oregon. Oregon favored by 13 and a half. Yeah, I think they clear this year. I'm going to go Ducks. I mean, great season for the, the Beavers, but I think some of the wind out of their sails. Going to Oregon is going to be tough for them. And I'm with you there as well. Theoretically, I should be picking against you on every single one of these picks to try and catch you. But in the spirit of the game, I am uh, I am picking what I would have picked before you said it. So I'm not using my positional advantage. Kentucky at Louisville. Louisville favored by seven. I like Louisville here again. I'm taking all the favorites. Uh, I think this is going to be close, but I think at worst you get a push here. Yeah, me too. I mean, I I mean Kentucky sucks, so go Louisville. A&M at number 14, LSU. LSU favored by 11. I think A&M keeps this close for whatever reason. This is a total gut pick that it's inside 11. Well, LSU's defense, as we know, is absolutely terrible. A&M's offense does score. I like that pick as well. 
Iowa State at Kansas State. Kansas State favored by 10. Your clones. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, I'll have to pick against the clones here. They didn't get it done versus Texas. I think Kansas State has enough to beat them by 10. I'm going to take the clones on the road. My first separate pick because I'll, I'll make a pick for you. Texas Tech at Texas. Here we go, Texas fans. Texas Tech favored by 13 and a half. I'm going to take Texas Tech to get inside this number. I think this is going to be close for whatever reason. Me too. That's exactly the feel I had. Alabama, 14 and a half point favorites. Only 14 and a half point favorites over an Auburn team that just got murdered. Yeah, I'm murdered. sure that they're going to do better than they did last week, but that 14 and a half is still good enough for me. I'll take Alabama. Yeah, me too. Clemson, favored by seven, just seven on the road at South Carolina. I'm very tempted to say take South Carolina, but Clemson's played so well the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm taking Clemson here too. Number uh, UNC, two-point favorite over NC State. I don't love this pick, but I guess I'm going to go NC State with an upset. Yeah, I mean, UNC is completely untrustable, but uh, I'm going to take I'm going to take UNC. Why not? Maybe they sneak a win out here in Drake May's last game. Washington State, the old Apple Cup at Washington, where Washington's favored by a healthy 16 and a half. Yeah, Washington State just doesn't have it enough anymore. I mean, this game, again, I think it's close for a while, but Washington pulls away in the second half. Like that as well. Number two, Ohio State at number three, Michigan. Michigan favored by three and a half. No Jim Harbaugh coaching. Yeah, I don't know if that really matters. I'll go ahead and take Michigan here. Yeah, I think until proven otherwise, you have to pick Michigan over Ohio State. I'm going to do the same thing. All right, Daytona Steve, what does he have on tap for us this week? He's got a Turkey Day parlay with the Egg Bowl, Ole Miss covering that 11-point spread. The Lions covering a 7.5-point spread versus the Packers. The Seahawks, 7-point dogs versus the Niners. $10 there to win 60. Another parlay, Missouri, the money line beating Arkansas. Obviously, I like that one. Arizona favored by 11 over Arizona State. I like that one too. Louisville Moneyline versus Kentucky. I like that too, Daytona. Oregon State plus 14 at Oregon. Don't like that one. Michigan favored by three of Ohio State. So there's one I don't like there. $10 to win $105.72. So if he wins both those bets, he'll cash in at $165 for this week. We'll see what he can do. All right, lastly, Alan, quick discussion to close this podcast out. Florida basketball came in eight and a half point favorites against Florida State. A team that Todd Golden had beaten once already. It was 1-0. and And then just obliterated them an incredible first half maybe one of the best first halves of basketball i've ever seen a florida team play florida state was only within 20 for like a minute total of the game how good did that feel i didn't get to watch any of this unfortunately because i was at this conference but i just looked at the score and i was like wait what is that is that right i'm refreshing is that is that true and i never was bring myself to like break out and watch it because we were winning by 30 the entire time but i absolutely loved it man i'm sure that felt great inside the odom oh it felt it felt so so good on so many levels and i kind of found myself i was walking out of the state of the arena saying you know i wasn't sure how much i cared about florida sports anymore doing the podcast you become obviously you care but you become analytical and you research and you do a lot of work around it takes a lot of time and when you lose and lose and lose you know, you sort of you sort of become a little disconnected just for your own sanity. And with basketball, I love basketball. It's like Florida's basketball team under Mike White just drove me to madness. It was so frustrating. And I like what Golden's doing, but Florida State beating us so many years in a row, like just in general, the malaise of where we're at and the two biggest sports we have at the school, 
to get that win was like a therapeutical night. I think people felt that. There was like a lot of therapy going on. The, the players were stoked about it. Todd Golden said afterwards, it's a statement win. They wanted to win this game this way. It was an emphatic beatdown. And it felt good. It felt good, Alan. I only have one qualm about it. And that's that the Odome remains still broken because of the club-level seating where the, the, the alumni that sit in the club-level seats never fill the bottom bowl. And you know, you and I came from an era in the Odom where it was theoretically worse in build out, but it was far better in this number of seats that were always filled around the court side. So now you get the students full, the end caps aren't full, the booster section's half full. You know, I know Scott obviously is a listener to the podcast. I would implore the the good folks at the UAA to figure out how to make sure those seats are full. I know they're sold, but if they're in the club level eating hot dogs, Alan. It's brutal for the atmosphere. And if you're a basketball recruit, do you want to go to a school where most of your games, the other side of the courtside seats are literally half empty? No, you do not. And secondly, I love baseball. And I like the fact that baseball, that people let you seat hop if seats are empty, especially to seats that are not premium. So the fact that in the O'Connell Center, people are getting booted out of their seats but moving down 10 rows to sit somewhere else in the second level with their friends is ludicrous. That should also stop. Okay, I'll get off my little soapbox here now, but I want the best atmosphere yeah. possible at Florida sports, and I hate it when stuff works against the atmosphere for the players and the students and, and really just in general for all of us to go to live sporting events. But I loved that win over Florida State, and I will be that much more hyped if Florida football can find a way to beat Florida State on Saturday. It will launch us into December with such good vibes. Let's hope it happens, Alan. Close us out. All right. Another big pod episode here. Hopefully we're coming back next week after a giant win versus FSU. Either way, we'll be talking to you guys soon. Have a great day, too.